Ben Sek is an Australian Magic the Gathering player. He has one Pro Tour Top 8 and is the only player to have won a Grand Prix in Africa. Ben is one of the most fearsome limited format players in the game and can usually be seen asking thoughtful, hypothetical questions on Twitter. Ben works in the gaming industry as a creative and game design director. Today, we explore the impact of Magic on Ben's career and his current thoughts on where the game is going. Welcome to Humans of Magic with Ben Sek, Magic player and game designer. Hey, yes, I'm talking to you. Yep, that's you, right over there. Yes, it's me, James. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the audio version of Humans of Magic, and I appreciate that. I really do. But I want you to know that I have recently launched my YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is where the video version of the podcast goes live, and I think it's a lot of fun because you get to see the guest's expressions, you get to listen to the podcast while at work with your YouTube on, you can have it playing in the background, and I also do a bunch of other fun stuff as well, like vlogs, little clips. I do understand that some of these episodes are really long, so it's fun to do all that stuff on YouTube. All you have to do is subscribe to the YouTube channel. Please also subscribe to Humans and Magic on Instagram. It's Humans and Magic on Instagram because I will also post clips there. I'll post reels, I'll post little tidbits of Humans and Magic that you will enjoy on your way to doing something else. So yeah, that's that's the plug. Please subscribe to Humans and Magic on YouTube and Instagram. It's a lot of fun. I promise you will not regret it. And if you're interested in supporting Humans and Magic further, there is always the Patreon option. I'm on patreon.com slash humansofmagic. You can join the exclusive Humans of Magic Discord community. And most importantly, you can just join and give me feedback. You can tell me how I can make the show better, make future guest suggestions, all of that fun stuff. Humans of Magic is a labor of love. I do this part-time. It's not my main source of income and so anything you can do to support the cause is greatly appreciated this will help me keep the weekly episodes going and weekly clips going on youtube and audio and all of that great stuff that you've come to expect from humans of magic all right plug is over please enjoy this episode <laughs> Ben Sec, Ben, how are you doing, my friend? I'm I'm doing great. You know, it's a it's it's kind of one of those lucky warm nights uh, where I live in Seattle. Um, the 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 summers in Seattle are kind of like tremendous, and the winters are horrendous for at least for, for me. I I'm not a real fan for, of the wet, but like the summer is almost perfect. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I grew up not too far away from where you are. I mean, Pacific Northwest, right? So you you got to get yeah. your uh, parka. I, I guess I guess people don't really have umbrellas. It's sort of it's sort of uh, frowned upon to to use the umbrella when it's just drizzling. But you just kind of have to let yes. it, let it get on your head and just just deal with it, right? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 look, I, I've only been in Seattle for like just over a year now, um, like just recently, and so so I'm I'm still getting used to all the customs that are evolved um, with all the wet weather up here. But I really do love it. It's just uh, the the winters might be a little long for my tastes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. 
Uh, how are you enjoying everything other than the weather in Seattle? I mean, it's uh, look like you have a nice uh, setup here. Uh, you know, with the are you house? I don't know, apartment. Uh, hopefully, you're yes. enjoying your living conditions, right? Yeah, no, I mean, like as I said, uh, my family uh, we moved from Barcelona about a year and a half ago, uh, ostensibly for like family and work uh, reasons. Um, and we actually bought a house, which we were lucky enough to be able to have that, those means to do so. And so, but I knew that I was going to be working from home. So we made sure that we had a house that had a really nice kind of like working environment. So this is kind of my den for, for one of a better word. It's like where I do my, my work. Also, I have um, all my gaming stuff in here too. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a game designer by trade and I, it's, it's important that I kind of expose myself to a lot of different things. And one of the good things about like Seattle is it's, it's very geeky, nerdy uh, a city that has a lot of opportunities to actually kind of like fly that flag, so to speak. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it might be due to just the wet weather. I, I don't know. That's my, that's my theory is like, because it's so wet, people just have to stay indoors and play pinball or board games or magic, the gathering or whatever it is. Right. Or D and D. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it doesn't hurt that this is kind of like, you know, obviously the birthplace of magic and, um, in, in, in many ways it, you can be as immersed in magic as much as you want. There's something to do every weekend. There are so many tremendous like retail stores that have, you know, like great play spaces, obviously, you know, there are one, like, I, I, I don't know if you've been to, to Mox, um, oh, yes. House. yes. I mean, it, it's, it, a, it's a I, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's just not many stores that are kind of like rival the amount of play space and really the service they have there. Yeah, so for folks who don't know, like Mox Boarding House, I think it it's owned by Car Kingdom, right? So yep. um, they've got, I think they, now they have a location in Portland, but it kind of all started in Seattle area. Mm -hmm. And it's just uh, an amazing board game cafe. Like you can have beer and chicken wings while you're playing board games. And it's it's just super... It's kind of hard to explain without visuals, but it's just very, it's just a very nice, I would say it's probably one of the best LGSs, if you can even call it an LGS in North America, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of barely an LGS because it has a bar and a restaurant attached to it. And, and they are not like, it's not just a, a restaurant ne like next to it. It's, it's a restaurant for that uh, location. In fact, I sold a bunch of cards to, to the store and I actually cashed it out in food and beer. So, as you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's, that's a good trade for me. <laughs> that's that extreme flexibility is very important. And I also have to shout them out too, because I played magic tournaments there when I visited Seattle in the past, uh, you know, even buying singles and like just having that whole process, like where you do the kiosk and then they find it for you. Like it's all really seamless and, not painful at all like which is actually more than i can say for a lot of lgs's that i've been to like they just have a very efficient organized system for for everything basically <laughs> right yeah yeah no i i'm super impressed but i mean the, to be honest like you know even apart from like mox seattle has been like a really nice return to the state so um yeah. as i said before I, i'd spent the last few few um years in Europe in, in Barcelona. Um, and we came back basically because I have a young family, I have uh, kids ages three and one, and we wanted them to be closer to family. So this mm. was, and, and they live in kind of the Portland area. So we wanted to be close, 
but not too close. You know, <laughs> you know, like in-laws now. I mean, my in-laws yeah. are great, but like it's even even my wife said, "Hey, like let's let's make sure there's a little <laughs> an effort to get there." Well, it's really first of all, it's really important that you and the wife are aligned in 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 those goals, right? Because like it, otherwise, it would be disastrous. But yeah, you're right. Like it's not it's it's like um. It's not literally, but it's like an arm's length away, which is always nice. Right. Uh, you're on the same coast. Um, but just going back to Seattle, like other than Mox, what's been the most interesting or maybe best thing that you've encountered while in Seattle? Just maybe outside of gaming stores and magic, you know? It's, it's funny to say, but well, there's, there's a couple things. One is, is just the, the natural environment is beautiful. Like I, I, I live literally two blocks from a the arboretum which is essentially like a, a really really wonderful kind of like forest park um and that's just indicative of, of so many areas in in seattle because there's so much lakeside and there's so many kind of like great mountains and and kind of and reserves and things like that and um another reason why we chose the seattle is that with young kids we want to have more like outdoor opportunities in barcelona it's actually a really wonderful city to bring up family, except it doesn't have a lot of green spaces. Mm. Um, and so we both, you know, love hiking and, and, and like going to a bunch of, uh, of things. And like Seattle has a lot of those things where it has the city and a lot of cool stuff in the city. And within like 15, 20 minutes, you're already in kind of like natural areas and, and really even within like an, under an hour, you're like hiking on, on mountains. You can even go to Rainier, uh, you know, just, just, just a few more minutes from that. So, um, it's, it really is the mixture and the, and the variety that we, you can have in Seattle. That's really kind of, um, been great. And honestly, the, the summers in Seattle are wonderful. Like they're perfect. Whereas I think the like you know obviously Seattle gets a bit of a, a bad um, rap with its winters and they are not great I mean they just constantly rain but what's not really talked about as much is that the fact that the the, the summers and the and the kind of the falls yeah. are really really nice that's sort of like the state of internet discourse in a nutshell it's sort of like people always accentuate or highlight the negatives and then they never talk about the actual good stuff that happens eighty percent of the time right or whatever percent yeah. of the time. I I I th I, th I think I mean I agree. I, internet discourse is definitely like that. I wonder if it has something to do with what people find interesting. I mm -hmm. mean, the thing is, how often is it like compelling to have a conversation where you agree? It's it's actually not that. I mean, I mean, yes, it's, it look it's nice, it's pleasant, and everything else like that. But then you don't walk away from that. It's like oh, I'm glad we agree. No, it's like you actually walk away from conversations where you say, oh, that person provided a perspective or had a point of view that I don't have. Right. And that's interesting. And, you know, optimally, you synthesize that information and then you kind of like come up to a new conclusion. But that's why I think people tend to want it because they, they actually like the fight. I think the fight is some somehow kind of trying to justify your 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 opinions and things like that i don't saying it, I don't, i'm not saying it's great but yeah. I, I think that the the motivation behind it yeah certainly depends on what it is um yeah. i i just have to say going back to seattle like i totally agree with you i think the optionality is really important right even for someone who doesn't have a family like being able to go hiking uh do some urban stuff suburban stuff like um there's just a lot of options and um 
how long were you actually in uh in Barcelona for with uh yeah just over three years um oh that's quite a bit so, so their kids were all born there basically no actually well one was born there one was conceived there and then we actually moved over while my wife was pregnant um and honestly and, and this is the the kind of the, the rub I actually prefer non-american um and you know i grew up in australia and so i've lived in europe and i've i've spent some time in in the uk too i actually think family lifestyle is is better not in the states and part of it is the values and and, and i don't want to kind of like you know paint the, the entire america with too broad a brush but i think there is a focus and a priority placed on family life yeah, in essentially Europe, the, the Europe and Australia, uh, as far as I know, mm-hmm. um, and that has to do with some of the politics for sure. I think a lot of the politics kind of like focus around kind of like individuality and, and meritocracy, and 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 that kind of like leads us one one particular way uh, in American society, and that and that gets you know that helps America in some ways. Like the, there's a lot of reasons why the U.S. is better at innovation and I don't say better, I just mean more successful historically. Um, but I think that what we're all finding and we're all feeling in some ways is that it, there's some externalities, there's some costs to um, that kind of focus that disallow certain lifestyles or certainly ch- choose against them. And, and, and part of that is family life. I think uh, work-life balance, um, you know, just also the the ability to have meaningfully large times at crucial points in your uh, family's like um, evolution, you know, like maternity, paternity leave. These are all priorities that are much, much more prominent in um, societies other than America, or at least developed ones. Yeah, I'm, I, I think I think work life balance definitely has something to do with it, because just the fact that in American culture, like people generally just have less of a good grasp of work-life balance. I mean, this is a generalization, but I just feel like people in general just have less boundaries when it comes to like, I'm off work. And also like people have these feelings, like I can't take a decent sized vacation, you know, whereas my colleagues in Europe, like they're always kind of doing that because um, it's the norm, right? So I think that definitely would permeate into all aspects, right? Because like what you do as an adult with your time is definitely going to have an influence uh, on your kids, right? Uh, I think that's yeah, one no, aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, part of the reason of like work-life balance being not being as equal in American culture is that progress, like, you know, from a, from a career perspective is kind of, it's much less bound in, in many, many industries mm. in the US. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm from a, a tech industry. So with tech, a lot of your like advancement is actually connected to like your output as, as a worker. Right? Yes. So like if you're effective, it, like, and so if you put more time into it, you will actually progress more. It's, it's, it's very much kind of like you, you see the payoffs there. And so if you want to prioritize that, if you care about like advancement and I did when I was single and when I had, you know, that kind of focus, like it, you, it, it, you wanted to just put more time into it and it came at the cost of something. Um, a lot of times it's social life or it's family life and things like that. But 
you don't understand what you're missing out on a lot of times, right? You, because you're not kind of forced, you, you're given this kind of rope to hang yourself, so to speak. And so that's, um, yeah, I don't know. I like, as I've gotten older, as I've gotten, uh, you know, quote unquote wiser, I feel like that balance is not healthy. And uh, I try to kind of like practice what I preach with my, my, my work right now. I, you know, have hard stops. I try not to check emails on, on off hours and weekends. I have dedicated time for my, my kids. Um, and, you know, and I try to be as kind of present as possible um, as, as a parent and as a partner to my, to my wife. And so I think you can, you can create your own boundaries that make, make sense. But the problem is the, the general kind of incentive structure of America is not to have the, is not to, to value things in that way. Yeah. Um, but I can, because I've, you know, I've done, I put in the hard work uh, years ago and now I can kind of like have that sort of balance, but not everyone has lucky enough or privileged enough to have that. And, and I, I try to be very aware of that. So, you know, I manage a, a bunch of people at, the, at in my company and I try to be very, very kind of like, I have try to have their perspective in mind when they're kind of like, you know, requesting for time off or they want to have a bit of leniency in their schedule. Everybody has to kind of like live a, a, a fulfilling life. And, you know, the way that it happens is it happens from the top down, unfortunately. Like that's, if, if you could lead in a way that people kind of like say, okay, I, you could still make it having a, having a work-life balance like that. I think it will hopefully change the culture of at least your team. And then from there, hopefully kind of, you know, pays it forward all the way down the line. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally hear you. I mean, it's really about the, the systems. And as you said, like the, the incentives, right. Uh, by the way, I also work in tech and, uh, part of the reason why I, I used to visit Seattle a lot because I work for Amazon and Microsoft may have heard of these companies. Uh, and, uh, you're totally right. Like when you're younger, the game is just kind of laid out in the open for you in a way, especially like in tech, it's just like, there's a game that you have to play. The harder you work generally, uh, I want to say, generally speaking, it's pretty meritocratic. Of course, there's also the politics and you have to get good at that game as well. But, um, generally speaking, yeah, like it, it's, it's easy, it's accessible. It's just there. And then there's also something interesting about how, as we get older, we look back and we're like, oh man, I was so foolish and maybe too driven back then in some areas, but in a way I would also not ever take that back. Cause it kind of made me what I am today. And it's just like, like, it's sort of like how your parents might tell you, like, don't do this. And you're always thinking like, they're probably right, but I probably need to actually make the mistakes and then learn from it. Cause like, just telling me right now, you shouldn't work yourself to the bone or work yourself too hard and set boundaries. <laughs> maybe, maybe 20 year old James didn't really, or 25 year old James didn't really want to hear that, you know? So. I mean, look, my, I, I don't know about your parents, my, my, my parents are like what we'll call, I'll call classic kind of Asian immigrant parents, right? Okay. So they're, they're very, very much like work as hard as you can mm. and, and, you know, good things will come from that. Right. Um, and I mean, also there's a little bit of a, I think, and I, 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 I say this is Asian. I don't want to like, again, paint it so wide as a brush, but when I was growing up, I felt that way, mm -hmm. um, that the measure of success is your income. Like, and I, and I, it, and I, I don't want to say that it's like purely, it's not one-to-one. -one. There are kind of like bad ways to earn that income, but, um, in general, like 
you know, my parents, even as I was older and, and like, would care about things like what type of car are you driving? Like how big is your house? Yeah. And that is, it's not, they're not kind of like objectifying. No, it's just kind of the language that you have, right? That's right. That's the, it's the language of success. And so they, they came to Australia, uh, you know, like with not a lot of money and they really made like a very, very kind of a respectable kind of middle-class, um, kind of life for themselves after kind of like starting off with almost nothing. Um, my parents were from Malaysia originally, and I'm Chinese Malaysian. And so that we, we still kind of have a little bit of that Sino, um, uh, kind of culture behind us. Um, and then, you know, I was pushed towards being kind of like the doctor, lawyer, kind of engineer, kind of like, side. and I, I actually went down that path. Uh, initially I, I was doing information systems. I was doing essentially, you know, computer engineering and I hated it. It was something that like growing up, um, I realized that while I was pretty decent at it, I had like, you know, okay. Uh, results in, in college, I just could not see myself. I actually like ha had an internship with a, a bank or something like that. And then kind of like, you know, did that work for like a, a couple summers. And I was like, oh, this is, this is, doesn't interest me. It was like, is this it? I mean, <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is it coincided. So I started um, playing magic to actually get kind of a little bit to the, to, to kind of the reason I'm here um, in my junior year of high school. Okay. So year 11 in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of in the thick of it, when it comes to like preparing for college, uh, like I, you know, I actually learned to play magic while I was doing uh, a, a, a Shakespeare play. I was actually on, on the, in the cast. Wait, wait, wait how, how did this happen? Did somebody in the cast introduce you to magic or what? Yeah, basically, like, you know, with, with all, like I, I, for those who have done kind of like a lot of acting, especially when you're not kind of like the major characters, um, the major players, you want to have a lot of downtime. You're kind of like waiting for like, you know, a rehearsal and your scene's not up. So you're kind of like sitting backstage or sitting to the side and, you know, we would play games. And one of the games I got was like, um, a revised starter of magic. Um, this is in, uh, 94. Um, and so, and I was hooked. It was like really, really like early on, um, that I would kind of like found that this was like one of the most fascinating games. And then I, I kind of found the local like competitive scene and I, you know, just kind of like ate it up and it really consumed a lot of my final years of high school and most of my college oh, all my college years. Okay. Um, and so I would say it came to me in it when I was at my kind of like weakest, when it, when it comes to desire to kind of like move in other directions, as I said before, university and, and college wasn't really something that I was, uh, I didn't love what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there's, I, I did a lot of, can, can you articulate that a little bit more? Like, what is it that you didn't love? Is it, is it like you like, but you don't love, or you just kind of thought to yourself, like, I don't really see myself doing this for the next 10, 20 years. Like, what was it? I, 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 yeah, I think it's more the latter. I mean, the thing is like, I, I liked learning. So, so it's, it's, I, in general, especially now as I'm older, like this, my, my college self and my current self are like pretty different, but like 
I love the process of learning something, but I kind of hated the application of, of, of it in the real world. In most cases, if you're programming something or you're building some sort of database system, which I was doing, or you're like, you know, like I was, I was just doing a lot of kind of like uninspiring, like when it comes to um, creativity and, 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 and kind of like effort, because it was also kind of easy for me. So I was, where it's not a challenge when there's, you're not pushing yourself. And also I wasn't pushing myself because I didn't have an interest. If, if I found it interesting and I, and difficult, I think it would have been a little bit more compelling, but actually funnily enough, magic was a thing that I found, I found very difficult and very compelling. And whenever I learned something, it kind of crystallized like a, a new piece of the puzzle that allowed me to kind of like say, Oh, wow, I've gotten better in a certain way. Mm. Um, for the, for the longest time, I would say that I was not a very good magic player. I'm still, you know, I, you know, I, I've been very fortunate with magic in some ways. I've, I've caught a lot of breaks and, and, and had some success, but, uh, I definitely started off, you know, kind of like the worst of my personal play group. They took me under their wing. They did train me up. And like, I, I feel like it gave me the sense of achievement that I was missing in my academic life. Mm. And it kind of just led me down to playing more and more and more magic. And, and honestly, I like, it was too much for the time. Like I, I would say that I became, you know, for one of a better word, obsessed with, with, with playing it because like, I, I just felt I was like, really, really loved the rush of playing uh, tournaments. I, I loved hanging out with the friends I had there at that, at that point. Um, I would, you know, miss a lot of class just to, 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 to to play more magic and uh, you know in in hindsight it probably wasn't the right choice but when as you said before i don't know if i you know if you, you said hey if you can if, you know click your fingers and change it i don't think i would because i like where i've ended up i think that the jobs i have are kind of tremendous and, and really fulfilling in some ways and and game design is really a calling for me like i i it, it's it's compelling in a way that I think will be never ending, at least for my personal kind of um, desire. Yeah. So that's really interesting because the way you described it, like magic was not only in a way kind of a active rebellion, but also just something that you could latch onto almost like this alien thing that dropped from the sky that fulfilled all these things that you didn't know. I'm actually thinking about the, something that Jeff Cunningham wrote a long time ago about just, you know, how he has these digressions in his tournament reports about like what magic is. And it's just, it really hits the spot right here. It's just thinking about like how, like it just somehow managed to encapsulate all the things that like people who are curious, people who are competitive, people who are into high fantasy, people who are into like competitive things in general, who are kind of like nerds. And I, I can't, I put myself in that category as well. Like it's just, it's just somehow it just dropped from the sky. And it had all these ingredients in a period of time in the nineties where we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have like Zynga and like addictive games yet. So it's just kind of this thing that's just like, if you knew about it, it was like getting this very legal mental drug that you could like latch yourself onto with no, like no barriers. Like you could, you could now go to the store every day if you wanted to and draft and play. Right. And you could no, read I, all I, these things and all that kind of stuff. 
No, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it so, so coincided also with, I would call it the early internet as well. And I think mm. one phenomenon that is, I think underappreciated with why magic is successful is that it was probably, it came at a time where information like, like it, it grew with the internet. The internet had such a, like a, a kind of, uh, exponential growth at the time and people were ravenous for, for magic information for those who played. And so the internet was there to do it. You know, traditionally, if you're like, like, like the, like a fantasy genre or movies or games and stuff like that, you'd have to wait for like a trade magazine to come out and there's kind of this delay of stuff. And you still had those, you know, you had the inquests and scries and duelists back then, but at least for me and a lot of the communities that I was interacting with, it was the mailing lists. It was the listservs. Um, it was like just, you know, the, the, you know, proto websites that happened to be out at the time that really actually kind of like allowed for magic to kind of like catch on in a very internet savvy, like generation. Yeah, And it allowed it to grow in a very, very kind of interesting way. And I think you can actually plot a lot of the, the growth of magic because they were also very, very early on with the uh, adoption of kind of like using those channels to distribute information. Like, I, I mean, I wouldn't say they were perfect. I mean, wizards have never been very amazing with digital offerings in general, mm. but they did I mean, they were, they were certainly more present than a lot of other gaming communities because they needed the growth. And so they saw this as an opportunity and a very cheap way of actually kind of getting, getting growth. I mean, the advent of social games and mobile games, and, and, and it all feels like inevitable right now. But at the time, I think that Magic was actually using some of the techniques that you see a lot like a lot of the social kind of like loops and connections yep. and things like that, that were, are now present in and, and just kind of like, you know, table stakes for a lot of the social and mobile games that we see now. Yeah. I mean, that's the magic, right? Pun intended. I mean, everything looks obvious in retrospect, but yeah, you're totally right. Like it's sort of, if you use like classical, um, like startup methodology now, you could kind of, you could kind of like, describe magic as being something that was like bootstrapped, uh, you know, with the rise of the internet. And, and at that time, the internet wasn't very developed. I still remember like, you know, going from reading, was it like, uh, scry and inquest magazine, like, uh, the duelist to like the dojo and like starting to the advent of all that stuff. So there was a lot of stuff, great stuff happening at that time. And like magic was like right there. So, um, I think you're totally right. Like timing played a big part in it. Right. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and uh, honestly, it it's a game of ex extreme depth. And also, for some reason, it's very compelling to read about magic. I think that's one of the things that is kind of unique um, with with magic. So there are so many pieces, cards, obviously, right? Like, that you can approach, like the game and the strategy and deck building and things like that from so many different entrance points that to even kind of scratch the surface of the, those combinations that, that are available, like 
you have to develop a vocabulary. You have to develop a, a, a kind of like a community that kind of like understands yeah. that. Like if you give a magic article to someone who doesn't play magic, it's totally foreign. Like there, there's, yeah, it's there's Latin. terminology, yeah. there's slang, there's even a cadence to the article mm -hmm. that is just not the same as like any sort of other media. And I think that's part of the compellingness. Once you're into the club, so to speak, it feels like you're kind of like, you know, like revealing arcane secrets, which I, which I think was one of the compelling aspects of early magic. It felt very clicky mm -hmm. and in the good way, as in you felt like you, if you found an article that no one else has read, or you kind of like saw a tournament report for like, you know, this obscure PTQ in, 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 a, in a backwater that happened to have some technology that was like really, really cool. And you kind of like be able to take it before anyone else had seen it yeah. to your local like uh, community. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the fact that I was very, very internet aware at the time yeah. and I was able to, I was on those, uh, you know, message boards, saw a, uh, like a result in the states and then brought to my local kind of fnm well, it wasn't fnms at the time but like the, my lo local events and be able to kind of like apply a lot of these new strategies and tactics and 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 card uh, card ideas in those tournaments and there's a that exploration is like super cool and now we live in a very information rich world when it comes to um like the sets i mean you know every set is dissected 50 different ways before even a card is opened like i mean you know dominaria united i have probably seen you know 50 different like set reviews mm -hmm. and clearly this hasn't even happened yet like yeah. you know we haven't had actually we're not able to tap any of these it's all theory and the thing is you know the theory is built on a lot of heuristics that you know exist from um you know like what we know about magic but that takes away some of the the beauty of what I felt early magic was. Totally. Which was a discovery and this kind of like information kind of like war where you could legitimately find things that no one had ever tried. Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, I, it, it, this is me, me kind of like waxing a little poetic and, and nostalgic, nostalgic here. I think magic is in a better spot now, but there's no denying, at least from in my perspective, that there was something special happening back then. No, I'm I'm, I'm right with you. I, I I'm also the '90s kid who is like saying, "Get off my lawn right now!" And uh, <laughs> you know, I started playing Revise with my younger brother in uh, in '94. So you know, we had the we found the two player starter deck. So I, I know I know what it was like. Uh, and yeah, there was something really beautiful about that information asymmetry. Like I still remember reading about. Uh, I think it was Inquest. They rated Necropotence like the worst card in the set. And yep. my friends and I were like, my friends, they couldn't believe it. And then I was the first one who read about how like, you know, I think it was PT1, uh, you know, somebody crushed with Necropotence. And I built that deck and I just, because my friends couldn't believe it. And they thought the card was the worst card. And I just, I just beat them with it. And of course there were no formats. So it was just kind of like, I have some information that you don't know. And I still remember the look on my friend's face when I when I beat him with Necropotence. It's like just this sort of like this thing fell from the sky. And of course, I can't take credit for that because someone else brilliant discovered it. But um, <laughs> there was something fun about that wild, wild west of just, 
I mean, that's what Magic was in the in the beginning, right? You just didn't know what cards you would ever get out of a pack. You didn't know, like, this card was rare, this card was common. And you would always just, like, find some brand new card playing somebody for anti. And it's just, like, that was, um, yeah, it's just a hashtag get off my lawn, right? I mean, I love that stuff. Of course, we have a lot of good stuff now, too. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I have a kind of a, a funny anecdote with that kind of thing where there was definitely there was a tournament and I, I think this is in kind of 96 era. So a little bit later where it was extended and there was very early in extended and there was a deck called storm drain that used storm cauldron and, um, combined with lake of the dead, I think. Anyway, there was a timing issue that basically was pretty obscure and, uh, it, it worked. But we, most players would think it didn't work. So we actually had to call ahead to the tournament. tournament <laughs> make sure it would be in your favor. Yeah. Just, well, yeah. just make sure the judges view this ruling. He says, hey, here's this ruling. Here's just like this link, right? This works. And they said, okay, it works. And then we, you know, we bring the deck there. We, it was for a Lotus. We won the Lotus like doing it. But it felt, I mean, it was kind of like, it was cheating is like by the rules, but a lot of people were just incredulous. It was like, this is not magic. And, and, and I mean, you know, yeah. I, I think in hindsight, I think it, it is playing a little bit kind of like outside. Well, well that was, the... that was not, not to pick on your example, but like, there's also kind of like the dark side of magic in the nineties, which is all about, uh, lawyering and loopholes. Right. So, <laughs> oh yeah, no. And, 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 and I, I, I was definitely, you know guilty of that and on a few occasions myself i mean I, it was just kind of the environment and i don't want to like you know justify a lot of that behavior because i think it made a lot of like unfriendly and sometimes toxic environments especially when carried too far mm -hmm. um and you know it m magic as a community has matured at least a little bit in the, in, the, in that respect. I think a lot, but like, you know, I don't want to kind of like overstate it too much. I, 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 but I do think that um, back then there was a little bit of no holds barred. If you can get away with it, it was okay. Um, I wouldn't say that like, you know, I, I don't think I cheated per se, but I definitely angle shot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it was not necessarily kind of like, you know, the most ethical way to, to, to kind of proceed. And, you know, I, I learned from my mistakes. I tried to kind of like, you know, I, there was a, a changing point, um, at least for me, I, I became a little bit more prominent in my, in the Australian community at the time. I, I, I was like a, a, you know, at the time, quite a, quite a, a vocal and, and leading voice of the community. And, you know, I, I took that responsibility somewhat seriously and, and tried to kind of like clean up a lot of, you know, take away a little bit of the more, um, Let's call it like angle shooty aspects of 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 rules lorry parts of my um, yeah yeah and because I, I was young I mean those kind of things where I, I had everyone did it and so it, I was very very uh, impressionable and so I was like okay well if that's okay then that's as long as it's not cheating I'm okay with it and then that, later on I was like okay this is not really how you need to be getting ahead of these problems rather than kind of like going with the flow. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was a period where I, I didn't play uh, Terminal Magic at that time. I was really into another CCG that is now no longer around. But um, 
I definitely, I mean, I think we definitely all have all been there. A lot of us have been there as kids. Uh, and let's be honest, we were kids. So there was a lot of um, kind of like, if you're not doing that stuff, you're not trying hard enough. It's almost like this sort of, uh, I, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, it was almost like a badge of honor. Like if you could like rules lawyer somebody or like angle shoot somebody to get that win, it felt like you actually played your way out of uh, defeat sometimes, like, you know, because you, you just wanted to win any way necessary. And for me, I was like, like the, the card game stuff was just a, a way to channel my aggression and my, my competitiveness, right? Cause I was not an athlete at all. So it's just like, Hey, here's a way I can, you know, compete. And, uh, and there were nobody ever like sat down with me and said like, you should, James, you should do this. You shouldn't do that. You just kind of have to learn that as a, as a young adult, right. Which is also kind of, um, Kind of interesting looking back on it, how unregulated it all was, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it speaks to something kind of interesting happening right now. It's like, you know, what amount, what offense is, is, is something you can't come back from. Mm. And I, I, I believe there is, there are plenty of those. I'm not saying that there aren't, but like there, there's a lot of like, you know, in, like younger impetuous like behavior that that you do when you're kind of like 17 or 16 or 17 or 18 or something like that right that like you learn from your your kind of like behavior and and, and you grow from that and you hopefully become a better human mm -hmm. and i think um the persistence of the internet makes that very very hard to come back from sometimes or it like doubles down on it or whatever right. it is and 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 and, and I don't have the answer to that. And I, I'm not even kind of like justifying like bad behavior when you're younger. I, I think, you know, we, we as a society should try and kind of rehabilitate or at least kind of like, you know, direct our younger, mm -hmm. younger people to, to be as good as they can be. Um, but I do wonder, you know, like how, how, how are people given time to evolve yeah. when their life is lived online? Yeah. And I, I don't really have an answer there for that. It's something I, I, I constantly think about with my uh, young kids. I mean, they're obviously too young to use the internet, but like, it's going to be, you know, some rules I have to set at some point. Yeah. Um, obviously, maybe the internet will be different by the time they're teenagers. But I, I, I do think that it's something that society as a whole needs to, you know, reconsider, like, what is, you know, what are the rules here? And how do we yeah. actually allow for humans to be human. Like there's some things now that feel a little bit too heavy handed. I think that's kind of what you're hinting at is like not hinting at, but you're sort of saying is that like, if you fuck up on the internet in a public sphere, your life could just kind of be over, or you could feel like your life is just over because you're, you're getting canceled or like, you know, a million people that you don't even know are just dogpiling on you because you didn't know better for whatever reason, whatever context. Um, and it's just so different. Like, I think in some ways, a lot things are a lot more lighter handed, but in a lot of ways, things are also a lot more heavy handed. So it's sort of like this weird world we live in. Cause I, I'll just tell you a quick anecdote. Like I was kind of like a polite Asian kid, right? So I played in LGSs and I never really like insulted my opponents or said anything. I just, I just played my game. Right. But I remember one time, like one of the kids in the LGS, they used a, a homophobic slur. And towards somebody, or it wasn't directed at somebody, but it just used language that was not appropriate, uh, just in general at nobody in particular. And then the shop owner just got really mad and said, Hey, don't say that that's derogatory. 
I mean, the fact is, I still remember that moment, like even now, and I'm 40 something years old, like, like that was a safe way for that kid to learn. And also for me listening to it, to learn, like that was not acceptable to say, but like, how can you even have that now? Like that doesn't happen now. Cause like now so a kid will say that on the internet and then, and then they'll just get lambasted. Right. So, um, I think about that sometimes. I don't know. It's just a very random story, you know? No, no. I mean, what I, what I, what I've come to the conclusion for is as an elder in a community. And I say elder, you know, probably I'm like 44. Um, you need to be always making sure that you're giving good counsel to people who are younger and, and less experienced than you. I like, I, I have had in my last, like, you know, let's say 15 years, I, I've tried to be a good kind of mentor to, to a lot of like, uh, magic players and, 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 and in not magic in, in like this kind of like good behavior and how to kind of present yourself and how to make sure that you're not kind of, you know, impinging on someone else's kind of like right to be who they are right or you know just like really kind of like causing these spaces to be unfriendly and I, and and i think that's the responsibility that we should be looking at we should say can we be a community that is nurturing and constantly like trying to make sure the spaces are safe and inviting and i you know, would implore ev everyone kind of like in this community to be kind of upholding that as much as they can and stop trying to score points. I mean, like, or trying to like, you know, catch people out or trying to kind of, you know, win the argument. I think, I think those things are just not as important as like making sure that everyone feels kind of safe and invited in, 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 into gaming communities. And I know this now, especially as a, as a creative director where I, I'm trying to make games that everyone wants to play. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to be kind of like looking at the, this perspective of every type of person, every, you know, point of view that you could potentially ad address. And I think that kind of like goes from not just the game mechanics and the game design, but also the game community, because like nearly every game that's worth anything has a community that is behind it, like that plays it, that talks about it, that um, cares about it. So. Games are community. I, I, I think that's one thing that's you, you can't cannot re, like separate the environment and the community that are playing the game from the game itself. And so you, you need to be kind of creating those spaces that like anyone feels like they can play the game. I mean, it's it's it it feels you know very woke to say it like that, but it's not really like it's not really like I I I think don't you bet it's just makes sense that you want more people to play the game the more people to play the game the the longevity of the game is going to increase because more people care more people invest in it more people create like to, to play all the events to buy all the cards to kind of like participate online and and, and grow that that game and so we are you know as as pillars of that community need to be a kind of like constantly create, like making sure that, um, people who are not making that, um, environment welcome, understand that they are doing so and try to lead them to, to, to uh, like kind of repairing their behavior. 
again, I, I don't want to get up on my soapbox too much, but I I, I, I see it constantly now, and and I, and I think that you know we're at a we're at a bit of a, a crossroads with the community, and we you know, and what I said the crossroads is like the community is now split in two, and it's very very kind of clear rift. You have like a casual community, and you have a competitive community, and like while like right now, and this is very very kind of new as a, as a new in in, in the, the casual community or the let's call it the commander community has supremacy in in in, in kind of the mind share or the, the 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 space of of magic and you know they traditionally they have been a group that hasn't had so much focus um and so much kind of like stuff obviously in the last like five years that's not the case that they've had a lot of, lot of good things but i think that they're it's important for both sides of this community to actually kind of like respect and understand that they're kind of symbiotic. You you, you don't want to kind of like, you know, the like growing one will actually grow the other eventually and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're not diametrically opposed. Um, no. And I also want to like, just ask like, are you this, this casual and competitive grouping? Have you seen this in other, in basically all the games? Like you're talking about magic here, but like in, 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 in the game, the games that you develop or other games that you observe, is it is it similar? Like, is there always a, a competitive mindset tier, and then there's all there's always a casual play tier? Yeah, I, I I think that's true. I mean, you'll have, I mean, some games kind of manifest themselves easier this way. Um, you know, you'll hear the term min maxers. These are people who who like are looking at the systems systems of the game or the or, or the community and kind of like trying to get the most out of that and then you have people who are like you know essentially just play the game for what it is and 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 don't try to kind of like you know optimize i think every community has those kind of games i mean again the more competitive like you allow for the game to be you look at like league of legends you have people who are like very very competitive and then you have people who just like play like once a week um and there's less of a risk there because their play spaces like don't cannibalize each other on a digital level. I think that's the one big thing that's kind of important to see. Like with digital games, you can have these coexist and you don't have to coexist and you don't have to interact between each other. With magic, there's a little bit more kind of appearance that one group is getting service more than the other based on the one, the cards that get released. So you say this is an EDH or a commander card. And this one's like based on standard and this one's based on modern. So you can kind of like point to these kind of things and you say, oh, well, they're getting more cards than us or they're getting more um, products and, and things like that. So you so you have this kind of like metric to, to measure how, how much um, a, a group is being kind of um, serviced. And on top of it all, you have organized play um, and now, you know, there's all these command fests and, and other kind of commander focused things. And, and then a lot of people who, you know, at least prior to very recently, there wasn't um, as much kind of like investment into the pro tour and, and that structure. And, and, th and people kind of like are looking at like, where's my Grand Prix? I used to have Grand Prix. I don't have Grand Prix now. I have command fests and not Grand Prix. So you can kind of like kind of draw that dotted line and say, well, I guess what's happening is that they're reinvesting the money that was like in Grand Prix into Command Fest. And that kind of is true, but you know, it's not, it's not the fault of that community that they're getting 
invested in. It just happens to be the correct way or one of the ways that wizards have decided to allocate their resources because they have a limited amount of resources and they think the growth potential is higher there. I mean, I, I have a discussion with my uh, one of my game design friends who played, also plays Magic um, about what is, well, firstly, what is the thing that would actually cause Magic to fail? Like, what's something Wizards would do that they could screw up so badly that Magic as a product, as in, when I say as a product, people play this game forever. Like, let's presume that's going to be true because there's always cards out there and that's going to be the case. But, like, as kind of like a, a, a brand creating, like, more and more kind of expansions. And, you know, we talked about, like, okay, well, the, the first thing we're talking about is, like, what if they got rid of the reserve list? Would that catastrophically, you know, cascade failure um, in, in, into kind of like the game not existing? I think, in general, that's my my prediction is that there's a pretty small percent of champions. Let, let's say they just abandoned the, the reserve list and started printing kind of, um, like, you know, Moxes and Lotus and stuff like that. I think that it probably would not have any effect on the viability of Magic as a product. And then we went through all these different scenarios. It's like, what the cook? And there's, there's basically nothing. There's, there's, there's ve it's very, very hard. Like, other than, like, catastrophic, catastrophic design failure, where they, they, like, they're just printing sets that are so, so far out of whack for, for the, from the rest of the cards, and people lose their faith in the game itself or the game creators itself, and, and it's not going to happen. They already have a formula that kind of like has the cards within a certain bound. Yes, they can overshoot, but you know we've had you know dozens of sets that kind of like overshoot, and eventually it, it comes back and yeah, it know, corrects it, itself. It, it, yeah, it corrects there's a balancing mechanism some, some way. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I actually think that there's not a lot of things that can be done. And what I will say about and, and how that ties into what we're talking about is I think if Wizards over-invest in one of their, like, player types, at some point the, the, the marginal return from that investment is going to hit a threshold where it's not correct. They're not going to make as much. They'll do another booster set and it won't make any, as much money or it'll, it'll essentially cost them more than it is to produce. And then they'll stop that. And then they'll kind of ratchet that back and maybe they'll, they'll change the focus there. They're not stupid. They, they have a business. They have those metrics. They understand their sales. And as I say, when they hit that point, they're still going to be a viable. Like, that set's going to suck. Everyone's going to complain, right? And Wizards will realize that because no one will buy it for whatever reason. And then they'll probably correct. And that correction might take years, because mm -hmm. they they build these sets so far in advance that they, you know any any mistake is probably going to kind of hit for like at least a year or two. Uh, but I don't think that's going to end magic. It's it's just too robust a product right now. Um, it's possible that I th I think the most likely thing that will cause the end of magic is if counterfeits are basically unrecognizable from. Mm real ones. I think that's that's probably the tipping point. It's kind of like the AI risk, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> the, it's, you know, 
the singularity where the 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 thing is so uh yeah yeah i i, I hear you yeah yeah i mean it's, it's so I think of counterfeits and, and a wizard's ability to make cards is not kind of like solely their um, domain. And I think that that's possible. Mm-hmm. I actually think the technology could be essentially indistinguishable or like require like so much equipment to basically tell the difference that it, it's, it's, um, it's basically real. Um, and I think that would be bad because wizards would not necessarily see the output of their labors basically. And I think yeah. that might cause them not to want to make sets because it's like, oh, we can't make sets profitably anymore because counterfeits are predominantly in in the system. Again, I don't know exactly if that's going to happen, but I, I could see that is an inevitability. Sorry, I could see a position where that might happen. Yeah, that could be one doomsday scenario. But I suppose in a way, too, Magic is kind of hedged for that because there is a digital version of the game. Although I guess one could also argue that the magic appeal is simply that it's it exists in analog form like magic would not i guess magic got here by being analog and i guess the last five ish or so years have shown that you can't just go all in on the digital aspect of the game uh especially with covid subsiding in many parts of the world like you just can't you can't like if you think of this as a bunch of levers and equations like you can't you can never like have just an all digital magic game, right? It's just not. It just doesn't work. I I I I've, I've kind of thought about this before. I don't know. I I think if you had a great execution, a flawless execution of it, I think there's a way of doing it. What I think is, Arena, you know, is a pretty flawed product. Yeah. Um, because. The, its perception of how it monetizes is not the expected like way that either magic players or non-magic players like magic players expect a system that's close to magic right and non-magic players expect something that's cheaper than what what magic is what arena is right right now and so it's in this weird spot where it's 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 not what the actual paper magic players once because it doesn't mimic the game enough right and it's too punitive on digital only game game players when there are so many other offerings on digital that are more efficient for their time or their money right and so it's like okay so so you have this kind of competitive disadvantage on both sides um and and so like that's that's the problem with arena um that being said i i do think that there is a spot that could like where they can be a cheaper game that they get scale uh, to the point that it becomes like a successful game it's just arena is not it and yeah. i don't know if wizards has the skill set as a company to be able to execute against that yet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe the changes maybe never they never get there but I, I i definitely think that they've they've they kind of made their shot and then they they've missed for um for most most intents and purposes it's not mm-hmm. it's not a horrible client or anything like that it's it's fine mm-hmm. i just think that the structure of their um collection and acquisition of cards is pretty flawed yeah. and the monetization is kind of like a little bit kind of here and there i think it's it's the software but it's also the people right i think the way of thinking about how magic should be at least within the offices of the walls of wizards like 
to me, it feels too institutionalized because it's run by people that still came up playing magic in the nineties. And I guess I, you could argue that they have talent that wasn't even born then and et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's still a lot of, uh, inertia based on like institutional knowledge that has been developed over decades that will never allow magic to just start from zero or like remove the shackles of what it was. And, and I guess you could also argue that you, you shouldn't remove those shackles because it's sort of like, that's the money cow, like don't kill the golden hen, right? Don't kill the golden goose. But, um, like you can't just take the good part out of it. Like you have to take the bad and the good. So just because of the way the machine is like, there's just no way it could start over and just say scrap arena. Let's do something from the ground up that has a legit digital friendly economy. And I don't have to worry about like the analog game whatsoever. And, uh, instead it becomes this kind of like weird mishmash of where it's like none of the parties are really all that satisfied in the end. And it's, it's basically like working in a corporation, but encapsulated in, uh, in a, in a product, which I guess we've all kind of been there in terms of designing that thing. Right. So, yeah, I, 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 I think you're, you're right. I, I think it's not quite, it, it may be an impossible needle to thread. Um, and, and that's maybe to its, to its credit, to the game's credit itself. I mean, it may be just like a perfect machine in the, on the paper side. And also there's inc incumbency. I think one of the reasons why magic is as successful as, as it is right now is that it's, it's basically the only game in town when it comes to the quality of game it is. I mean, I, I will essentially probably go to my grave saying that game uh, magic is still probably one of the, is the best design game. Um, of all time mm -hmm. and i've a couple of reasons why i think that but i you know i've been in the industry of making games for 20 years and you know just thinking about the problems that they're solving and thinking about the, their solutions and thinking about how robust that engine is i mean to think of a game that's 30 years old that is growing in its player base is absurd mm -hmm. it is it, it defies every every possible metric of like what you think like, what's the chance that, the, like, these game mechanics and, 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 and the structure of game, like, is was the right one? It's it's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's no other game that does this. There's this, like, no other game that's, like, actually growing in size year <laughs> over year. Nobody, nobody's playing away. Wolfenstein 3D right now, except no, for I the mean, diehards, right? Yeah. You, like, you can kind of make a case that, like, you know, there are games like World of Warcraft that have actually had kind of like, you know, mm. resurgences at different points. Mm. And even, you know, Pokemon, to some extent, like the TCG, also has had a resurgence in, in, in its own way. Yeah. But I, I, I still struggle to see a game that is as consistent and provides as much content as Magic does mm -hmm. and is like evolving itself in such a like tremendous way. It, it, it is it is truly a unicorn when it comes to um like it's the quality of game so and there's a couple of reasons i mean the, yeah. the biggest reason for me i just want to kind of like just kind of delve into like a bit of game design is that magic is probably one of the best non-human ways to self-actualize <laughs> and what i mean by that is that you can create a representative of your self in a, in a, in, in, in a deck, 
that is a like that is a really really hard concept to kind of grasp around but like i can build a deck and feel it's mine i can feel it matches my mood i can it matches my method um like you know it can be aggro it can be patient when you think of all the different emotions that can be kind of like contained within a magic deck and like you can have things that that have like really flashy you know big effects and you can have things that are very very subtle right and these are all within the same game all within the same set in most cases and so it allows you to actually kind of like create a simulacrum of yourself in a game which allows people to feel very very tied to the game and and the decks they play and there's there's a there's a very good reason why commander is like um one of the more popular games because like you can very much kind of like push your own identity there and the more of yourself in, in the more of yourself you invest in a game the more sticky it is for you because it more becomes less a game and more a lifestyle and i think other games that kind of have this kind of thing again i'll, I'll say world of warcraft is a good example world of warcraft your avatar at its kind of peak is pretty close to who you are you've made choices about the items the the the, the powers it has there's so many different decision trees in in an mmo that allow you to kind of like you know self-actualize as, as that avatar the reason why people still play the game who to play it is because they feel this is them. This is actually who they are. And we all talk about the metaverse in, in kind of like funny terms because like, you know, all the, like Facebook's attempt to try and create um, like the metaverse is like essentially kind of like it's a cart before the horse. The best metaverses are MMOs. World of Warcraft is a great example. And actually TCGs. I think that magic is a great metaverse. If, you, if you're really trying to like say, what? What defines it? It's actually trying, you know, creating a version of yourself within an environment that's kind of like extremely big. Like the the, the magic environment is essentially infinite. The, like the amount of combinations um, is beyond any human or computer's kind of imagination to, to try and like encompass. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's the reason why I think the game is particularly amazing because. I don't think there's enough complexity in most games to allow for that. That's um, yeah. So, and and Magic for some reason has has all this complexity and still is not too daunting for the average person to come and play and, and pick it up. I mean, I think it was at one point, but for for some reason, kind of like our ability to play games has also improved over time. I think the games that are out now, and I, do, I mean both digital and um, kind of physical tabletop stuff are much more complex than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, if you think about the board games that you played 30 years ago, they are simple. They have very, very straightforward mechanics. Oh, yeah. And you have a look at the games now, and, you know, these are also, these are entry-level games, and they're way, way more complex, have way more kind of, like, developed, um, <laughs> like, mechanics and, and, and systems. And, and Magic has kind of grown that way. I, I think it's, like, perfect. Yeah, I, I'm glad you confirmed that part about games being more complex because, like, sometimes I feel myself learning new games and I wonder if it's just old age or is it games getting more complex. So thank you for validating uh, my deepest fear about, like, uh, about that. So, yeah. Well, the, the world is more complex. I, I think this is one thing that people don't realize is that 
used to used to be given like binary choices a lot of the time. Now we're every choice has you know at least a dozen or way more decision trees. Like you can't just buy cereal; you have to you have to buy one of a thousand cereals cereal aisle, and that's kind of same with games. I mean, there used to be platformers and then you know shoot 'em ups. And that's, these, you know, these games used to be very, very straightforward with the mechanics because one, it's a technology issue, but the other is like game design had, you know, iteratively was not that complex, right? And, yeah. and, and, and our understandings of what motivated players. I mean, things like progression is actually a very, very or relatively new concept. And mm-hmm. I say progression is um, the ability to get better over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With Space Invaders, you start, kill, <laughs> kill some aliens, yeah. and then, you like, if you die, you start from the scratch again. There's no progression. I mean, there's kind of personal, kind of like getting better the, the skill-wise, and that's yeah. progression, and, you know, getting your high school a bit higher each time. But there's no kind of, like, in-game progression. And I think that's something that, you know, now nearly every game has some sort of, like, here are the milestones that you hit, here's the levels. And here are the things you get at each level. And, and, and you know, the, the game design has understood and kind of distilled a lot of these um, human motivations and put them in game form. I mean, there's a reason why gamification has become kind of like almost a household word where you understand that, like, the systems that we actually exist in are actually pushing our motivations in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And... It's vice versa. Like games understand that, and now systems understand that, and that, and that's actually um, really, really kind of scary and interesting at the same time. So Ben, I really want to ask you about this because you've been a professional game designer for you, you said about twenty years, right? Yeah. 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 Do you, in light of what you just said, do you worry about just? over knowledge i don't that's not a word but like just the over application of knowledge or complexity creep when it comes to game design because what you're saying is basically like look or at least the way that i've interpreted is like look these games are timeless these games will last the test of time whether it's a world of warcraft or magic because they do things at a very basic level very well and they keep building upon it but i feel like now as a designer of something you have decades of institutional knowledge about like what the thing should be. So is it, is it, is it, is it scary to have to have this sort of like, almost like a postmodernism that's happening where it's like, now, if you're making a game, I imagine you're always referencing, like, these are the 15 games that did it really well. So I have to try to use this model and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it's almost kind of like, I hate to say the word cookie cutter, but I also think it's, it's almost like analogous to music where it's like, everything is the Beatles, right? Like everything has been done at a base level. So how do you, I don't even know if games, the goal is to stand out. So that might also be a false assumption, but if you are trying to create something unique or stand out, like how do you do that? Because in a way, like all games are derivative of what came before, right? Well, I I think you might've shown your hand a little bit. It's all about the goals that you're setting yourself as the product. Like, if you want to be unique, you can. There's still unique games to make. If you want to be 
successful with a high chance of probability, there are paths that you can kind of go because you know these these mechanics or these systems or whatever work. And yes, you can kind of get inspiration or cookie cut them from from other games, um, but there is often a secret source. There is a combination, or, or like in some cases, there's just a societal zeitgeist that um, you know takes something that that is pure game mechanics to a phenomenon. I, I guess I'm not really answering you very well, but like I, I actually think you, a game designer is trying to satisfy whatever goals he's yeah. set for himself as yeah. the product. Mm-hmm. And I think if you set yourself uniqueness, there's still areas to mine. There's still mechanics that haven't been explored. They're harder. They're not as on, you know, kind of lying around as, as easy as, but there's always like things that are kind of like changing the, 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 the perspective. One is technology. You know, the, the technology available to you changes what you can do with games. And I know it's kind of, let's call it trendy to kind of like crap on kind of like web three, like blockchain stuff, but there are mechanics that actually are actualized within that technology kind of a set that are unique to that set. And I'm also, I, I am kind of like mixed on the, on whether it's going to end up being something. No, I mean, useful. I think you can, I think you can, you can divorce the theory from the application because just yes, because absolutely. there's one application that you think is bad, doesn't mean the concept, you should just throw it out. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think digital ownership is actually for, for games, probably the, 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 the key piece that people are trying to make work. And, you know, the problem is that the avatar of, like digital ownership is like NFTs and, and, you know, board apes and stuff like that. And, and everyone kind of like, it's easy to point that out because it looks stupid and it is stupid in some ways. Right. But think of it this way. The value of a magic card is solely, solely, solely like has to do with the system it exists in. Yeah. Right. There, there is no inherent value of this card over another card other than people value it and the system rewards it. And I said the system rewards it as in like, this is a good card within our system, right? That is true of every object, digital and not object. So what digital ownership allows you to do is to have a unique piece that everyone agrees that is unique, right? That if I have it, as long as you can, like the system kind of values uniqueness of the, the, of, of ownership, um, like it can be valuable. Like it, it, it's weird. People say like, you know, why is, a, why can't I just like, you know, create a JPEG of the same board ape and own it? Like, well, what's to stop me doing that? Well, there's a system that kind of like verifies that. And it's the same thing. It's like, what's to stop me photocopying a magic card? I, I think people that ask that show a, definitely show a level of ignorance that like, I, I don't know if we want to go deep into that, but it's like, it's just like, it's yeah i i I, like there are people there are certain actors that paint the world in very black and white terms and they're not possible thinking in nuance and we can't solve their mental deficiencies like it's just not gonna happen 
right? Well, no, but, but the thing is, there's still people who think, like, magic cards are, like, the values are fake, so to speak. Right, right. right. Like, there are plenty of people out there who's like, this is worth this. Like, you know, people are constantly, I mean, even though they live in a world where there are, like, clear, clearly they're collectibles and they're clearly kind of, like, artificial scarcity yeah. that is created here that people value, right? Mm -hmm. The world is full of these things, and yet they, they're still incredulous because they personally aren't involved in those systems. Right. Right? They're right. not playing magic. They don't understand why something would be valuable. They don't understand kind of the nostalgia attached to it because they don't they don't understand the phenomenon and so so therefore but then, you know, if they see like a Michael Jordan rookie, they say, Okay, I understand that because I, I, I follow basketball and I know this thing is hard to get. Right? How do, like they can carry those two contradictory ideas in their head yes. because of familiarity of systems. Familiarity. What yeah. I do think with digital ownership is it's that kind of phenomenon for even more people, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are using, they're trying to use analogs like, can I just copy this file, right? To, mm -hmm. to, because they're actually, you can't copy this file. We're saying that you can't. Like the, the, the verifiable I think the way, mental motto is just misapplied. They picked the wrong mental right, motto, right? right? Yeah. But, but, the, but the thing is, okay, now, uh, so if, we, if you kind of extrapolate that to like even, even further out, like people's general mental model of how systems work is very flawed in general. They, they like because these systems are, are, are getting more and more complex over time, right? And this is true of not just games. It's true of science. It's true of like political systems. Mm. It's true of social systems. And every, like these, like the nuance is like getting more and more complex. But the problem is, you know, evolutionarily, we're 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 kind of like trying to simplify things because we need to be able to like, we can, we're still something. lizard brain. We're still primordial yeah, lizard. We're still brain. very, very lizard brainy. Yeah. And so like historically, or at least like when I was growing up, the way that we do it is that we'd actually have kind of like the, sh the shortcut of like experts. We trust in experts. That's how you like, you say, okay, that person has put a lot of time in doing the thing they're doing. Right, they have their PhD in blah, right? It's so like, okay, you tell me this vaccine works, I will believe you because I don't understand how vaccines work. Mm -hmm. But what the internet has done is it's democratized information yep. to the point that people feel much more capable than they are. It's kind of like a weird Dunning-Kruger effect where the presentation of that information a lot, a lot of people present them in, in much more simple terms than they, they really are. And so their mental models become simple. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this, this is, I think this is the kind of the danger that games also kind of go, go down to, where I think part of the discourse problem of nearly every argument of magic <laughs> and every <laughs> argument on the internet is that people have reduced their 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 systems to a level that is too simplified and and part of that's the platforms i mean twitter is not the greatest platform for sh showing nuance i mean this is very well known social media generally not very good at sh showing nuance but we live in a bite-sized world where i need to be able to get my information very quickly and very understandably in very short amount of time mm -hmm. um and so and so i you know we, we tend to simplify things I don't know. It, like it's, I struggle with this as as a game designer, where it's like, 
a lot of I've learned to understand behavioral psychology of players. Like we have kind of like we create like player personas and player personas are driven by how they interact with the game, what they care about, what they what they're triggered by. And we are kind of taught to breadcrumb some of these motivations um, into into games to make people do what we want them to do. Because and and I, I don't want it to sound insidious. There's everything does that, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's the world. Have, like, yeah. that's the world, right? Like, you know, we've had advertising for 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 decades. We've we've had you know incentive structures for centuries. But our knowledge of how our lizard brains work is much much better, mm -hmm. and the precision and the created environment that a game presents is even more artificial than most like environments because I, I can i can tell you what is valuable in a game like i just say this thing buys this thing okay if you do this thing you can get more of this and then people are kind of like they're because it, this is an understandable system it triggers them in certain ways that even though that they if, if they actually understood what we're trying to do they may actually change their mind they may do something different but the thing is i mean that's i don't know i haven't reconciled exactly what's the morality of game making when i understand the player's brain better than they do mm -hmm. um do i have a you know i mean i have some kind of uh morality like it, it's like gambling is in many cases too far right it's like i'm taking money away from you like by by kind of like hiding the odds so to speak that's that's what kind of what, the way gambling works is like you say oh well the rush of winning is far far greater than the, the yeah the you're, you're obfuscating information from right you're obfuscating information even if i tell you the math i gamble I, I i actually play table games and i know that they're negative but you know what the rush is better than the loss <laughs> yes and, and 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 this i mean this is simplifying it but and 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 all, all all these systems are trying to do is kind of like extract value even with our game the games that i make i need to monetize and and, and with free, free to play you kind of say okay how do you make someone get the rush uh, like when they purchase something they, they win the next battle mm -hmm. or they you know they, they 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 are able to achieve this this goal that they couldn't do before and and that rush is worth some amount of their effort or money or whatever. And it's kind of like, a, a, a it's down the same line as, as gambling. Yeah. But at some point you've got to give a little bit of credit to the player, like that they will make the transaction if they feel they, they it's worth it. Yeah. But I don't know exactly what that line, you know, if, if I have a product so compelling that you have to buy it, Am, am I am I incorrect for actually creating that product? I don't know. It's this is it's it's a it's a moral yeah. question that I I, I am ill-equipped. I, I am not a philosopher in that way. Well, there is something that you may be equipped to answer, which is that at least a lot of internet discord, whether it's like gamers or players or fans of things, people seem to operate sometimes on this like all or nothing axis of like either this entity or game or thing is completely altruistic and doesn't care at all about making a single cent or hashtag capitalism, right? 
So is there something that players or gamers or the community can do for themselves maybe to like have a better understanding of what they're signed up to? Because I find a lot of discords inevitably ends up being like, oh, of course Wizards should do this because they're about maximizing revenue. They should have Warhammer 40k IP. Of course, it's a no-brainer. And then, and there's no sort of in-between line. It's either like defend all their actions or abhor all their actions, yet somehow we're all still consumers. But anyway, that's another topic, right? Because you're supposed to be able to vote with your wallet. But um, is there something that the community can do to have a little bit more like, I don't want to say compassion, but maybe like understanding for the system, right? Yeah, so so I, I think it is unrealistic, at least within the society we're bringing, uh, you know, kind of operating within to think that magic should be made for its own sake. It is, it, it, it is, I, I, I think that is a Sure, that's personal. a straw man by me. Like, nobody really believes that. I, I get it. Well, it's a straw man, yet some people actually kind of, like, take it to the logical conclusion, rather than mm -hmm. say, you know, like, hashtag communism, like, everything should be free, and I, I should be able yeah. to... Blow it up. You know, yeah, start over. Blow it all up. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, I can absolutely appreciate that as a political kind of, like, discourse. I honestly like. I, I think the systems we have are pretty predatory, as a society. But let's leave that aside. We know this is not a politics podcast. But I, I, I have opinions there. But if you assume that like, wizards' goal is to keep, one keep magic alive because that's important for them, right? And two make a profit, and two grow magic to, like a even bigger kind of like uh, IP because. Um, more the the more customers you have, the more stable your revenue is, and and the 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 less of the chance of failure of that product, right? So, as a player, now the way you have empathy for that is they say, "Do I want wizards to fail? Like, do I do I want less players to play the game? Because that's what would happen, right? If if wizards fail, what will happen is less players will play magic, which means that you'll have less people to play magic with, and you'll have less cards to play with. And if you kind of like take that to its logic conclusion, like clearly people don't want wizards to fail, I think. And those who do are probably kind of like so far onto the edge that I I, I, I cannot save you. You're 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 kind of like kind of a lost cause. Yeah, you were lost cause when it comes to that discussion. Now, so now that we all kind of agree that we says like we want wizards to be successful because it creates more joy for magic players and and, and more magic players overall. What is ethical for them to do within that kind of like framework? And so the question is, I think we'd all agree. If magic became pay to win, and what I would say, is, like very, very clearly pay to win, um, you know, they, 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 like mythics only appear in collector boosters. I'm gonna go like, like, I think that's a bridge too far, because we're a game that kind of values like some amount of common ground when it comes to um, playing the most recent sets 
this is not counting the old stuff and everything else like that. Like, like there is like accessibility. There's a flaw to the accessibility that we've all accepted, which is like this common, uncommon, rare mythic in base set boosters and for the one of a bit of it. Like that's okay. If you think that is predatory, I think that's fair. I do think magic is very expensive, but you probably, the way you vote with your, your feet is this, magic's not for you. Magic's always been this way. And if you can't accept the premise that having different rarities in a blind booster kind of like configuration, uh, you know, if you think that is predatory in it, so, and it is kind of, don't get me wrong, it's kind of like a lottery ticket. So I, I don't want to say that that's in the case. You probably shouldn't play magic. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first, the, the base level. So I, I think anyone who's trying to go for cheaper than that is probably, they should either have some good friends who'll give them cards or not play magic. <laughs> I think that's the only way to kind of yeah. approach it. And, yeah. I, and I, and I, I, I do think wizards should, should try and find ways to kind of like make, Act, increase access to cards, but <clears throat> I, I I don't know if it's important for them to do so because mm -hmm. these people aren't monetizing very well anyway, so it doesn't actually kind of like help their bottom line. Mm -hmm. Now we get to the point of like, you know, things like secret layers, things that are like boutique very, very kind of like exclusive um, kind of like monetizing products, and they're very high like price cost level um, for per piece of cardboard. I think in general, I think this is still ethical because they are not presenting any cards that are uniquely functional within that space. Yeah. Right. I think that's okay for the most mm -hmm. part. Mm -hmm. I think where it starts getting iffy is sets like Modern Horizons, which have like a $10 booster um, pack, like booster pack kind of price point. And they're kind of like creating this artificial scarcity and price price level because they feel they can, right? The, the, like, I, I, I think that's where, to me, they've kind of like pushed it a little too hard as like, mm -hmm. you. But, but surely you see, surely you can even sense the subjectivity within yourself, like talking about these different, like it's, it's all on a, on a spectrum, right? So, yeah, I mean, look, look it absolutely is. And, and, but it, what you want to make sure is that magic isn't perceived to be predatory on the majority of players or the majority of types of players. Mm-hmm. And I think magic is very, very close to that now. I think, I think that like there, I, 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 I think it's totally reasonable to, to, to say that like magic is getting too expensive. I, I, I think this is a totally defensible kind of like, um, position to have. And I think magic, like wizards should think about that, right? It's like, how do we, how do we address that without actually kind of affecting without tremendously affecting our bottom line? There's no easy answers. I mean, I think the biggest worry is that they're just releasing too many cards. Um, and, and there's just, you know, there's just a very, very strong upward pressure. And I feel the dam will break at one point. I do feel that, like, at some point, 
you know, people will actually be driven away from the game because they cannot keep up or they, they just don't care enough. And like, people are going to stop playing. I don't know where that point is, because I do think for a long time, they were under monetizing magic. So, you know, as while, while printing more cards and more kind of exclusive cards is going to like increase the bottom line, I think they'll continue to do that until, you know, they hit that kind of inflection point where it starts not to do so. So I, I, I don't know what to say to people. Like it, it's, is it more expensive? Yes. Is it too expensive? Probably. Um, but I don't know how Wizards is going to kind of like know that until yeah. it's too late. It's like too late as in they're going to hit that crest and then we're going to have a couple of years of like, oh shit, magic is dying, which is not, it's not actually dying, but it's, it's going to have a few bad years because it's pushed it too hard. So you're describing like kind of a cost of playing magic, which leads to some sort of implosion. But going back to your earlier points, like you don't think this will actually kill magic, right? As in like, yeah. this will like cause the popularity to depress, but not not actually take it out, right? It would just be like, no, no. there'll be I, a too, kind of a reaction, a market reaction. Yeah, there'll, there'll be a re reaction in the growth of players or the current amount of players. Right. So, the, like, I think growth is probably slowing because I think you're hitting saturation point um, with the amount of people who can handle magic, so to speak. Um, and that saturation point is actually, it's further than I expected. I, I always thought magic to be much more niche than it was, like, five or ten, ten years ago. So I've been shown to be wrong about that. Um, but I do think that when it hits that point, there'll be a contraction. They'll realize it because the numbers will go down in, in some meaningful way. They'll be forced to address it because, um, you know, the, the stakeholders will say, hey, why is why are we making less money quarter over quarter? And then they'll have to repair it in some way, just like power. Like power level has ebbs and flows. I think amount of product is going to have ebbs and flows as well as they kind of like figure out who can they actually sell more to and how much can they sell them to. Like, I, I think that they were so excited to find a rich vein of very very deep pocketed like casual players mm -hmm. that seems to not run out so far. To be perfectly honest, and is much, much more elastic in their demand uh, for cards than the casual, competitive players. Because competitive players are very, very kind of like, very particular. Like, you know, they want the cards that matter and that and, they, and everything else doesn't matter. Yeah. I think casual players just have much more elasticity when it comes to cards that they will play. So like a greater number of cards will are like good for them. Yeah. And on top of it all, magic has now become a luxury hobby. So... Like all those people who played when they were kids and who are now kind of like competitive, casual, like commander players, they essentially have like, you know, disposable incomes, six figure incomes that they can spend like $10,000 on magic. It's the Transformers and... crowd. Like I grew up watching yeah. Transformers as a kid and now I'm an adult. I can, I can buy all the limited edition Optimus Primes and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, look, I, I, I have everything that I cared about when I was a kid, I own now. Because I, I, I bought it recently. I was like, yeah. because I, you know, I, as a kid, I, I used to be a Dungeon Dragons nerd and there used to be uh -huh. so many books out there and I wasn't able to buy them. I used to go up, borrow them with friends or Yeah, whatever. they're expensive. 
they're, yeah. expensive, they're expensive books. And now I like I I I have all the original like D and D books um, that I don't use. I just have them on my shelf, and I kind of like peruse them every once in a while because like it, you know, <laughs> it's it, nice it, to it, feel them like you have them. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it, it, and 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 the same with magic cards. I mean, I, I feel with magic cards it's a bit different because I actually still am very active. Mm-hmm. I, one of the kind of um, badges of honor I have is like I have actually played sanctioned or at least competitive magic in every set ever, mm-hmm. like that's been released. Like um, for a while, it was every pre-release, and then the pandemic happened, and I actually missed a couple. Yeah. Um, f- like, but I played them online, so so I guess like it counts if you count the arena stuff or the magic online stuff. I've played every set. Um, Unbroken too. Like usually, people have hiatuses or something like that. I, I don't know. Magic has been so, <laughs> so fascinating to me that I've appreciated like every kind of every yeah. twist and turn that's had. And uh, it's funny we, we we haven't really talked about that much about like my personal turn of journey with Magic, but I I owe so much to it. it. Like I owe my entire career. I mean, I got into game design. I was able to get into game design because I was. Um, I played on the Pro Tour and I met some um, other pro players who knew that I was interested in beca- moving into game design, and so they took a ch- chance on me. Yeah. And then I and I, and I you know I got a job at Zynga uh-huh. um, because one of the hiring managers used to work at Wizards. Okay. Had overlap. <laughs> yeah, Henry Stone. For for those who who know, because like one of the original. Uh, not the original, but like very early wizards, knew my name only by reputation, mm-hmm. and then said, "I'd like to interview that guy because like, he he believes that magic players are actually like well suited for that." Mm-hmm. And so, if it, if I hadn't played magic, if I ha- hadn't have some exposure there, I wouldn't have got into the, my foot in the door and get that interview in, yeah. the, in the first place. I feel and like then, I feel like every magic player has that sort of. Uh... Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but like that sliding doors moment, like when I interviewed uh, LSV, Luis, like he was always talking about how, oh, you know, if I didn't win this tournament, I would have quit magic and my life would be still different now. So all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and, and, you know, so many of my very, very close friends, you know, people that I, you know, have no magic connection with now, but very much a, a, a great friends and, and, yeah. and close close community of mine um Let, let's I, let's let's actually let's actually talk about one of them because um uh brian or better known as bdm brian david marshall right i think he mentioned to me that uh you guys met when it was gp bangkok like yeah. he had he had a first assignment or something so tell me about what it was like to meet bdm because uh, as i understand it like that interaction sort of like you said something about becoming a game designer so maybe you can just recount the the early days with Brian. Yeah, so it, it, it was... I actually don't remember all the details. Of, That's of okay. I, I, I'll, I, I'll fill you in on his view. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just... no, I, mean, I, I, I definitely remember meeting Brian in, um, like, Bangkok. I was... Um, so, one, I, I think this was 2002, is my guess, but I'm not positive. No, it's probably uh, maybe 2001, 2002. You won GP Cape Town in 2001. So do you remember if it was before or after that? 
And you won GP Melbourne in 2002, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, I think it was in between. Anyway, I, I took what was... I'll call it a gap year. It was not really a gap year because I wasn't really studying. Like, it was like, I, 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 to be fair, that's what they call gap years. Like doing nothing yeah. and relaxing. I wasn't like taking a, a, a year from anything. I just yeah. was taking a year from being in Australia. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, back then, I, I think these still exist. I don't know if you, you know, this, this uh, round the world ticket. Have you, have you heard of these tickets before? No, I haven't. So, so you buy this ticket, and it's connected to one of the global airline conglomerates. As in, like, there's like two major ones. One that has, you know, it's like the airlines are kind of like connected. They're sister or brother airlines, and anyway, they're, they're connected by these these two alliances. One's a Star Alliance, and uh, something I forget the other one. Anyway, you can buy a round the world ticket. And that at the time was pretty cheap as like, I don't know, two or three grand. And, and w the only restriction was you had to tra travel within the one year and you had to go the same direction around the globe. So if you was going east, you have to keep going east and vice versa. Um, and you have to, and you're given like some amount of stops, like the more, the more expensive the ticket, the more stops you can get. And, and I think I bought a ticket with like nine stops. Um, Holy moly. So, yeah. <laughs> so this was actually part of my round the world trip that I, that I was going to, I took a, a year off and I was like just backpacking basically through, um, through the world, but it wasn't true backpacking. What I tried to do was I tried to kind of like pinpoint, um, where Grand Prix were going to be and Pro Tour is going to be mm, and try to like align the trip, right. Yeah. And, or, or like, you know, some, this was only for the flight. So like I could I could obviously, you know, buy my own jump flight or train to kind of get around from these things. So anyway, I, I spent a year and Bangkok was one of the early stops because I went from Sydney to, I think somewhere in Singapore, Malaysia, and then to Bangkok there. Um, and I think this was, uh, Brian's first international, um, kind of coverage job. Um, I, I, I'm not, not positive, but I, I knew him because, well, mostly by a lot of reputation. Um, actually back in 96, uh, this, this is kind of like time jump a little bit. I, I was such a fanboy of neutral ground, which was his store in New York ah. that I was going for my first pro tour. I literally went and then the pro tour was in New York. So I, I landed and told the cab to take me to neutral ground so I could make the sealed deck tournament they were running like at, you know, 7 PM. And so, <laughs> and I, I, I had, I, I didn't have any accommodation. I was like, just take me to the sealed deck tournament. Um, anyway, I, like his name was very prominent in, in the community, obviously. Um, and so I knew him kind of by reputation. I think he knew me a little bit by reputation. Maybe we'd actually kind of like, cross paths I, I couldn't remember uh, then but we really kind of like bonded over that kind of time where i told him i was uh, looking to be a, a game designer i think he had a, a, like a lot of connections to wizards and things like that um honestly the most memorable piece of kind of meeting brian on that trip 
was we took a boat ride to a snake farm. I don't know if he kind of told you this. Um, no, he did we, not. <laughs> Absolutely we, not. We were like milking cobras. And this was, you know, something a tourist do. But like, I remember we just had a great time. We, we, we hung out a lot and it was kind of like a good, a great bonding moment. And, 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 you know, like Brian, I, I consider one of my like closest friends now. Um, for those who kind of follow us on social media, we often, or we've done this like three times. We have, we're both big fans of competitive cooking, um, shows. Um, like I think of both our favorites as top chef specifically. Um, and so we have our own kind of like competition every time that we're in the same spot. It's called uh, Misha's Work Chopped. Because I don't know if you know Chopped, whatever. Chopped, very, okay. Very, very, it's very, very bad pun. Fantastic. Um, and so, you know, we have friends kind of set like parameters for our, our cooking competitions. And so we, you know, like try to make the most delicious meal out of those, those parameters. It was, it was super fun. Um, and honestly, we talk much more about food than anything else. So how does that work? Like when you do the competition, there's like a, just like Top Chef, there's a time limit. And then you actually have judges, like your friends are the judges. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So we, we usually prepare get either anyone who's happens to be where we're cooking, you know, it's, it's one of our friends places or one of our places. Um, we get a friend ahead of time to come up with some parameters. And, and in some cases, get the ingredients in it. Like the parameters might be, you know, cook with this fish or like uh, one of the first ones was you had to cook um, a dish with the five colors of magic represented on the um, on the dish. Mm. So kind of cool. Um, and it was like black cod. Uh, what was a red? I don't know. It was like. I can't remember actually what well, it was a while back, but like each, each of the, the actual ingredients was named the color of the thing. It wasn't actually the color of the thing, but it was named the color of the thing. Yeah. So I think it was, uh, I can't so what, what was, uh, what was Brian's secret? Cause he told me that his claim to fame all time is beating you twice in the head to head cooking. And he, he said, he'll take that to the grave. So what was his secret for besting? You uh, in uh, this, uh, I, I, I want to say that that is not true. He did not beat you <laughs> He definitely beat me once. Um, the, the first one uh, we did it uh, at a friend's place in, in Minneapolis. Um, but he won. So the twist in the so we did a three course meal, I think, or three or four course meal. Um, and the finals was uh, desserts where we got to choose our own baskets. But we had, I think we had to only choose five ingredients. Um, but then our friend. She was very, very kind of devious. She actually had us start cooking, and then we were forced to cook with each other's ingredients. Um, and Brian was not the very happy. The old in the middle, yeah. The old switcheroo arises, like, you, you're forced to use his, and you know, you're going to come, come up with something new. And I had something like tin... I, because I, I chose some weird stuff because I was trying to make um, a particular type of bread pudding. And... With, with corn and all sorts of stuff like that. But then he came up with this brilliant, um, like, fresh corn ice cream, which was delicious. It was, like, one of the most delicious things, and he hasn't been able to replicate it since. Um, but it, it basically was the, the dish that was able to, like, beat me. Because um, we were kind of neck and neck. 
And the second one, it was actually in Barcelona in, in my house. Um, I officially won. Okay. But, <laughs> but one of the things that happened also in the dessert course is that he says that I gave him salt instead of sugar when he asked for the sugar. I don't remember this, or suddenly... So he thought that you spiked it, or you... you yeah, I, I, if I did, it was totally accidental. Regardless, sure. his dessert was not very good because it was salty rather than sweet. Mm. It looked good, and probably mm. was going to win, mm. but, you know, officially I won, and while I say it wasn't perhaps the most satisfying of wins, it's still a W in my eyes. I didn't do it, I, I didn't attempt to do it, but... Uh, He's still a little bitter about uh, salt versus sweet. <laughs> nice. How did you? Uh, how did you even start cooking? Is it just a hobby you've always had since you were young, or what? No, it wasn't actually. Um, I really only started cooking once I moved to the states. So, uh, kind of timeline wise. So I, I I'm like 44. I was born in uh, 1977. I spent essentially my first 26 years in Australia. Uh -huh. uh, mostly in Sydney and then in, in Melbourne. And then I moved to um, America to work for a company called Upper Deck. I'm probably familiar with them. Um, they, I was there to actually, you know, be a game designer for uh, their, like, TCGs that were doing. And they were doing, like, Versus System, which is the DC Marvel, um, like, uh, TCG. And I always hear about this when back when uh, Patrick Sullivan and Cedric Phillips were doing their Resolvables podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, shout absolutely. out to, to Patrick. So, yeah, he always yeah, had those uh, stories. Patrick, <laughs> Patrick's, like, one of my best friends. We work together. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, colleagues yeah, and friends. Yeah, we're really, really close. Yeah. Um, and, you know, always enjoy kind of uh, hanging out with him. But um, th th there was actually kind of this nexus of very very kind of famous like magic players and I say famous in, in, in the sense of like uh brian kibler uh was actually my roommate when i moved over so he's he's um yeah he was like at upper deck uh justin gary uh mm -hmm. david humphreys um like uh antonio uh, antonino de rosa ken ho um there's a bunch of other kind of like um, magic players that I'm forgetting the name names of right now, but like, I'll, the, like at the time, quite accomplished set of um, kind of like former magic pros who are kind of like making um, card games. Sure. Anyway, part of like moving to the States, basically initially I was, you know, not making a lot of money. Um, and so I, I kind of by necessity I, I started kind of like you know learning how to cook so i kind of like reduced my costs and that was when i was actually with um roommates with brian kibler and i loved it i mean my my mom she was an amazing cook um she, she doesn't really cook that much anymore but like it, it, it was it's very much culturally kind of like in like I was always in the kitchen and she would kind of show me stuff. I would never cook with her. I like, it's very, very strange. I like, while I'm very influenced by the fact that, you know, what she cooked and how she cooked, I yeah. like, I try and remember some of that. You never I, actually like did it together, but you're so influenced by it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in, 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 in like some of my kind of uh, re more recent things is like trying to recapture some of the, you know, 
cultural touchstones um, from a from a dish perspective that I grew up with, and and that's actually uh, for those who haven't eaten Malaysian food. Malaysian food is like amazing. Like I like it's so good. <laughs> I mean, Malaysia and Singapore, both those countries, yeah. are like phenomenal cuisines. And if you haven't tried anything like that from there, you're missing out because they are amazing, just amazing across the board. Um, anyway, it's par- partially culturally, I like we had great food, and partially I needed to save money um, early on, and then I, I I got a lot of joy cooking for other people. So. Um, when we worked at Upper Deck, we all lived kind of within like, you know, the same apartment complex because, you know, we were kind of young and impetuous and we all, you know, wanted to kind of just hang out together. Um, and I often cooked for um, like, you know, large groups or, and, and things like that. And I really kind of got a, a love for, for just doing it like that. And, yeah. um, and, and cooking to, to now is, is probably my number two hobby behind games. Um, and sometimes it's been number one, depending on kind of like the, the, the time of day. I mean, I have as many gadgets as I do kind of like card binders, kind of like, you know, they're, they're, they're vying for the same amount of space. No, that's, that's yeah. amazing. And, uh, the upper deck experience, was that your first experience as a, or your first role as a game designer? Yeah, officially. Yes. Okay. Um, I, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I've had many brushes with potentially working at wizards. Um, so to kind of give a little background of like, uh, why I came, became a game designer. So I was having some success in magic, but I was getting some pressure from my parents basically to actually get a job. Cause I was like not making enough to kind of like do a reasonable amount. It was, it was back where the payouts wasn't that high. There's not that many kind of like writing gigs. And this is way before kind of like, I would say the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, where you could kind of like make a very, very solid living playing magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, but I love games. I love the structure of it. And, and so I was like, how do I get into um, like into magic? Now, remember, I'm this I'm living in Australia, have no background in, in, in game design. And I was like, okay, how do I do this? So I was like, I got it into my head that if I made my own set, and I was able to show it to people, they would say, Wow, you know how to make um, magic cards, like, you're hired. Yeah, you're hired. Like, I, I, this wasn't like, I did have friends who like, worked at wizards and I did have some reputation kind of as a player, but I was like, I was very like, I, I, I also tried to do some schmoozing and networking kind of like whenever I went to a pro tour or something in, in the States and stuff like that. So I did have some sort of connection that I was thinking, okay, all I need to do is like come up with this kick-ass set. So on my own steam, and this was back when this was not kind of something, something that p- people did a lot of. Like now you have all these like forums of like people making like, you know, their own cards. This is like, even this is very early on. Yeah. This very is early on. on. Like it's, it's not like people weren't making the custom cards. People were, but it was, it's still early enough where people weren't making full sets or anything. I was like, yeah, but I, I actually made a, a full set of magic essentially with doing the entire like themes. I mean, I, I used a lot of like, 
you know, found out on the internet and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. like, it was very much, I tried to be a theme, like do, do a theme, have a storyline and everything else like that. Um, and actually also coinciding at the time, I was pretty big into the Australian magic community. And, um, at that time kind of juggling playing as well as being a TO because like, I was like trying to like come up with ways to make ma money playing magic. I was like, okay, I can run events and then run. And I used to like do a lot of like trading and selling on the side. So it's like, if I run events, people want to buy cards for that. So they can buy cards from me. I'll start trying to be this kind of one stop shop and trying to be a little bit entrepreneurial. Um, and I created this tournament series kind of like through the, um, some of the, the local stores in, in Sydney where the finals, you know, if you do well in the series, <coughs> you draft my set because I wanted to have like play test play it. <laughs> anyway, I, di I did all the stuff. I, I made this set in hindsight. And I, I unfortunately I've lost it. I've, I, I've lost a copy of it. So I, I, I don't think it's uh, it doesn't live on in some digital uh, I, I, CD I, or it was something. On a CD. So I, I actually burned it to a CD all yeah. the images and, um, that was how long ago it was like burning things to CDs. Um, but I've, I've, I think I've misplaced that CD-ROM because like, I, I don't know where it is. I, I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, and even if I had that CD-ROM, I don't know if I could actually even read it. It, it might be scratched but, up. It might not even play now. Yeah. yeah who yeah. knows? But, yeah. but the whole point was like to create a set that I could show to a wizard employee that they would be impressed. Mm -hmm. Um, so what happened? You and created it, and then I, yeah. I created it, and I showed, and and basically, for the some people that I showed it to, I I, I made some, a lot of rookie mistakes, a lot of too much text. I mean, compared to modern sets, maybe not that that much text, but like <laughs> not enough. Then, <laughs> probably not enough now. I mean, like there's yeah. so many lines of text now. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost a, a, a joke in itself. But they were like kind ish, and then. I was able to actually have a conversation with Randy Bueller, who, who I don't think remembers this, but like I, I think at the time he was head of R and D at the time, and I think they were still like looking to hire and expand, and they were interested because you know I, I put in that effort, um, but the fact that I was an Australian national basically said their legal slash. HR department didn't want to have to kind of figure that out back then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, especially for just like a entry level R and D member. Like, you know, I think if for, for someone who's like make, taking up a, a bigger spot, maybe they try harder, but I, I, I you know, this, also this is a long time ago where I think it was just not like those just better options probably than me at that time. Um, and so I think had I been an American citizen or, you know, maybe even a Canadian citizen, who knows? Um, it would have been like more likely that I would have got the job, but I, from that effort, I had some of my friends kind of like realize I was making that effort. And there's a, I, I don't know if you're familiar with a magic player named Brian Hacker. Um, he is very kind of old school. Definitely no. don't know him, but have definitely heard of him. Yeah. Yes. So, so he, he's very, very much kind of like part of a generation that, that is kind of like known for modernizing draft strategy. I guess he was mm -hmm. like one of the best early draft um, players. Anyway, one of the pioneers, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, he, and, he, and he's written, he, he was very known for like writing in the dojo, 
uh, one of his early articles, uh, I don't know if you know the Pool Halls of Magic, that's uh, a very classic article um, that, you know, still some people cite today, is, is by him. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he, we were doing a money draft after a pro tour one day, and I, I you know, it was like 2 a.m., like this classic kind of like old, old school pro tour, uh, and, you know, I got talking to him, and he says, oh, well, I'm actually working for Upper Deck, uh, you know, we need people, we, we were kind of playing the same uh, team because you just played with anyone um, that was uh, like playing at 2am and he he said, look, just come over here, we'll figure it out, we'll figure out the, the, the logistics of getting you over here. And I, I that was the start of it and it was kind of, um, you know, it was my into the industry. And I worked at Upper Deck for five years, made a lot of like great connections and, and honestly lifelong friends at, at, at that time. Um, and was able to kind of parlay that into digital games where I actually had no experience. I mean, I, I like, I, I wasn't a programmer, mm-hmm. um, but I was able to like, you know, parlay my, again, my history of magic into the interview and then was able to kind of like shine enough at the interview to actually get that job. And that's happened multiple times. I mean, there's multiple times where my magic history is something that's caught the eye of somebody and said, that is something that we care about. And while I think I had a lot of like luck and a lot of privilege and a lot of just things going my way, I think it's certainly underestimated the skills that, you know, being a tournament magic player gives you if you have the discipline to kind of like apply them in the right way. Yes. Not just playing tournaments that works. You actually have to kind of like say, okay, I play tournaments, I think in a certain way. And then you have to do crazy stuff like make your own set or, you know, like write a treatise on, 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 on some strategy and stuff like that. You, you, you have to kind of like start like representing how your um, tournament experience or tournament skills actually apply to the job you're going for. But I think if you can do that, I think people are very, very open to like seeing kind of like people with different backgrounds and different kind of like ways of approaching kind of mm-hmm. um, like a problem set yeah. that 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 are worth worth kind of considering. I think I think that's just kind of like a life thing in general, right? It's just like the idea of you creating a set. I would I would call that kind of like auditioning yourself or auditioning your yeah. your talents. So it's like you just have to put yourself out there and take shots. And uh, a lot of people, if they if they're too shy to do that like things don't just magically happen unless you go and shake people's hands and you try to make something happen on your, on your own. Um, so I, 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 I commend you for doing that. Um, I do want to ask though, cause I was asking about upper deck, like what, what was it like to like first go in there and, uh, kind of like, I assume like learning everything for the first time, right. As a designer, like what is there, is there something that you look back on that, you would maybe say like, that's my biggest learning or maybe even my biggest mistake from that era. I think my biggest learning is that you always have to be open to that. You're likely not the smartest person in the room. I mean, I I know that's kind of cliched in some ways, but because in the moment as... you always think you are right, and that's that's just well, that's how it is. Sometimes. Yeah, you always think that your opinion like is more relevant or more kind of important than it really is. It like ultimately you're better off sitting there and shutting up for a long time, 
And I don't mean like that you should kind of, you know, interact with people. I just mean that bias early on in your career, bias in, and even later in the career. So I don't know why I caveated that, but like bias with listening first. Mm -hmm. um, I'm now, you know, a creative director or senior, senior creative director now. So I, so I'm kind of like leading teams and often leading kind of discussions of this thing. But one thing I do as a leader is I try to, you know, practice what they call servant leadership, which is a little bit of a cliche, but what the way that I do that specifically is in any given discussion, I never give my opinion first. I always give it last because I do not want to color the opinions of people who are interacting with me, especially people who are like, at, like lesser on the totem, the official totem pole than I am. Mm -hmm. And, and I wanted to get as true an opinion from them and in a, a safe spot as possible without kind of them being kind of polluted by what, you know, a leader's kind of opinion is because what you often get is like people kind of following you. If you say it first, people say, Oh, you know, like I, I want to, you know, make you think that you, you, you know, I'm on your side or whatever. And, and, and what I try and do is say, you know what, every idea is safe. Just as explain it, understand your, 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 you know, be able to kind of like get, justify your, your opinions, but there's, there's value to every opinion in a room because most games you're making for more than one person, mm -hmm. more than one type of person. And so you need to incorporate all these voices in the room and almost like value, value them let's say equally, but like you must consider them equally. Uh, mm -hmm. I think value them equally is a bit different to consider them equally. It's like you, you should take them on its own terms and kind of like try and use like, you know, very consistent principles to kind of understand where that voice is coming from and what, what's, the, what's the actual kind of like piece of, um, insight they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. overall, I would say that that's one of my biggest takeaways is that you're better off trying to absorb more than like say something because that's how you get better. It's how you understand kind of like thought patterns, because I think most problem solving jobs and game design is like one of those ones involve like trying to see many different perspectives. And, 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 and that's really, just really important that you actually kind of overcompensating for not your opinion because you are hundred percent understand your own opinion. So you saying it doesn't actually gain you anything other than other people hearing it. Like you're, you're not improving by listening to your own opinion. You're improving when you listen to other people's opinions. Yeah. So I think that's a really valuable lesson, no matter what stage you are in your life, but how did you actually learn and internalize that? Was there, was there some like particular event that made you change your ways or is it just, is it just getting older and wiser? Like, what was it? Um, I don't think there's any particular event. I do think that I just got like a lot of my upper deck compatriots probably saw me as quite argumentative um, because I, 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 I would try and, you know, in high school and in college, I did like debate and things like that. And the actual kind of verbal kind of like jousting that is involved in that, the, the, those skills was interesting and exciting to me in of itself. Like I, I enjoyed kind of like trying to kind of like, you know, outmaneuver someone in a, in a discussion or an argument. And I think 
there's no value in that when you're actually both trying to win. Like you're, you're both trying to get to the same spot, right? Like, and so I, I think I just overstated my point too often, wasted a lot of people's time because like you need to be out, like often hours and hours of kind of like going around in circles, like trying to, you know, make a point. And it's like, who, they, they understand your position, right? How do you actually get from that position to consensus? I think that's the thing that we never try to do. And I thought you could just shout down the other opinions. Um, and often, you know, the proof is in the playing. Like I, I made some horrendous design mistakes in early on in my, in, in my career. I like, like I, I, things that I'd be embarrassed to say now. Mm. And even some of my early sets in, in verses, which, which I was responsible for were kind of considered to be underpowered and failures because I just didn't think about things in certain ways. So would you say Failure that it was kind of like hindsight, like, okay, in the moment, like you, you said you were like, you wanted to be right. You wanted to be argumentative. And it's only like looking back at the work, the work that you saw, okay, maybe I need to approach this differently. Kind of looking at the results. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's looking at the results. Um, I think I've had particular times in my life or years that, that I am much more circumspect. I like, I, I try to uh, reevaluate like pretty often and, 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 but it's usually not in the moment. It's usually like months down the line. I think about this, like, oh, okay, how did, how did I approach that? Um, and, and now as I've gotten older and wiser, I try and do that more often than I did. I did it probably, you know, every few months and now I try and do it every few weeks because I, I try and, and sometimes, you know, even in the moment where I'm, you know, having some sort of discussion with, with my, my, my family, my wife, and, and I'm trying to like not approach things in a way to try and win arguments. I mean, she often uh, says like, Hey, we're not trying to, to debate here. This is not, that's not the goal of that discussion. The goal of the discussion yeah. is to come up with an outcome that we're all happy with. Yeah. It's like, not about winning and losing. Definitely. No. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is like, you know, I've, I've, I've personally been brought up in such a kind of, um, competitive environment where it comes to magic, when it comes to, you know, even growing up, my, like my, my parent, my mother would very much kind of be competitive against my peers. Um, you know, she would, she'd say like, what, how did so-and-so do and in, in, in compare? And, you know, I, I honestly love comp the competition in, in magic. I mean, I think that's the reason why I will always be a competitive magic player. I won't necessarily be a professional one, but I always be one that cares more about the competition than I do um, the times. To be perfectly honest, like I, I enjoy, I play Magic because I like the competition of it. Um, mm -hmm. I obviously enjoy the, the social part of it, but if there wasn't tournaments, I think I'd probably drop it. I, I think honestly, that's like what I care about. Yeah, I, I'm the but, I'm in the same boat, man. Uh, it exactly the same boat like if, if there's a what did they call that i already forgot the name like a rcq i'll be like hey it's there i'll, I'll try to play it I'll try to spike it um but you can't get me into a commander game I've, I've tried it i know i know you've been on podcasts people ask you like hey ben do you play commander and i can totally relate to the polite answers you've given because like I'm just not into like the non-spiky stuff. I just, it's just part of life and playing magic, just knowing yourself. Um, but it's also interesting when like com commander players start talking about like the arms race, but that's, that's another, that's another topic. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. it's, it's so weird. Like to me, it's like, like 
just know the objectives, right? Whatever you're playing, whatever game you're playing in life, just know the objectives. If if that's if those are the rules of the game, then those are the rules of the game. Like don't don't play this game and pretend you're playing this other game where there's other rules. Like that's just not how it works in my world. Like maybe I'm very black, too black and white in this sense, you know. I, I think we're similar in that way where I, I, I think the unwritten rules are the most frustrating for us. No, just write but it out it, if they're unwritten, right? Like, otherwise, don't call them unwritten rules. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I fundamentally don't like Rule Zero. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with kind of, like, commended discourse in general, but, like, Rule Zero expectations, to me, are a game crutch. As in, because... It's a patch, yeah. It's, it, it, not only is it a patch... I actually think in most cases, not everyone is happy with the rule zeros. They, they, they accept that like someone is, someone is like, I, I, you know, he's, he's like, we, we are not going to play like with mind twist, you know, I, mm -hmm. I'm just whatever card it is. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to play soul ring. Okay. And then that's our, that's our rule zero for our group. I'm sure there's someone who wants to play soul ring is what I'm saying. It's like, you, you, you agree with that. Um, because you, you, like the social compact kind of like requires you to do so, but the fact that is it's, there's so much flexibility in that kind of social compact means that you're actually kind of like imposing kind of like your rule zero on somebody um, that doesn't actually want to play with that. The great thing about like games in general, or like, like let's say official magic rules or whatever, is that you don't have to have this argument about whether it's, it's legal or not to do. Like you, you don't it's have legal to have if it's legal, and it's the legal goal legal. is to reduce your opponent's life total to zero. So <laughs> yeah. that that is it, or deck them, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, look, I as a game designer, I actually <laughs> I, understand, I understand the motivations that I go, go beyond, beyond mm -hmm. like casual gaming. I, I want to say that it's part I, of getting older of, too is empathy, right? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, empathy is super important, and and it's, it's why I actually kind of like respect um, the, this community and what they've done and try and learn. I mean, like part of the, I did not foresee the rise of commander to the extent it is. And I, I want to kind of like, no, I did not buy stock in commander. If that could be, no, bought. I mean, and, yeah. and, and, and as, as much as you could have, if I had to kind of like, you know, make predictions on a prediction market about like what, like it's likely to happen to, you know, for, for, for magic, that would not be one of the things I would have done probably like, you know, five, 10 years ago, whatever it is before the commander times. And even when it was happening, I don't think I was getting it. Right. Like I, it was not until it became like inevitable. You could not, not see it. Probably 2018 is when the inevitability is like, it's like, wow, yeah, that was a tipping they're, they're point. Doing yeah. so much here. Right. They know something I don't know. And, you know, and, and then I think over the pandemic, and certainly the kind of decline of um, competitive magic or at least tournament magic mm -hmm. kind of coincided with the rise. And now it's like easily the, I mean, it, casual magic was also always a bigger slice of the pie for the, than you ever knew. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm sure competitive players only make up about a, a third at its height of, of revenue. Now it's even less. I think it's probably like my guess is, I mean, Mm -hmm. Not not accounting for the fact that the you know competitive magic didn't exist for a while, probably after it all shakes out, it's going to be like ten to fifteen percent of 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 actual revenue. Right. right. Um, but but I think competitive magic players didn't really kind of ignored it when there was no products that they were kind of like 
seeing release that weren't for them. But now it's easy to see, see that there are basically more products and more emphasis on this community than in, in competitive stuff, or at least way, way more than it used to be. You know, yeah. Talking about, you know, orders of magnitude more than it used to be. And, and, and so I think now we are living in the same boat. We are aware of each other in, in this kind of world. And I think that's kind of, you know, I, I'd be inter interesting to see how the community goes on in the future. I mean, you know, there's already been some crossover. So a lot of competitive players like, you know, dipping their toe in, in, in Commander just to try it out. Like, you know, Kibler, um, Brad Nelson, a lot, a lot of people kind of like, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, this is where the wind is blowing, at least for some amount of magic. To me, that's, again, I, I, I personally prefer the structure of a tournament game, but I am, as a game designer, very, very interested in kind of like how magic synthesizes this because I do think at some point it's going to ebb and flow. Yeah. You know, yeah. As pro tours come back as competitive magic kind of finds its footing again, as the pandemic lessens, like there will be opportunities to grow tournament magic beyond what it is. And we'll, we'll, we'll find out how it is in the next few years. So as a game designer, how do you feel about, because you're talking about, you, you know how you talked about magic and world of Warcraft being things that have very strong longevity, like, to me, I feel like magic has made a successful metamorphosis into just a game into an actual game engine, right? Like, yeah. like essentially commander is a different game. It's just using the same engine, kind of like yeah. uh, parallels to unreal engine or uh, unity engine or like things that you can almost like license out in a way like I could see another game effectively just use the magic engine, right? Which is what commander is compared to competitive uh, formats. Yeah, I mean, there are yeah, there are other games like kind of do something similar. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, to just use another example that I've already said before, World of Warcraft is many different games in one. Right. Which is like you have the first kind of first person kind of venturing, kind of gathering, killing random mobs. And then you have the dungeons, right? Then you have one-on-one -on -one arena kind of like PvP. Then you have Battlegrounds. Then you have like, there's all these different kind of like modes layered on what is essentially the same engine. Like you're still using the same avatar doing the same stuff, except the context is different. I think there's many games that kind of like aspire to, to doing that. I mean, I, I think you're totally right. Magic is a platform for lots of different games and a lot, a lot of different th um, kind of experiences. Even within the competitive sphere, there was also limited draft like you know standard modern whatever like there's, there's already like six different ways to play the game and they all are distinct and feel different and even within draft there used to be rochester booster like you know rotisserie there's so many different kind of like experiences um and you know even when you play arena like every week they have this weird format it's like the artisan they they, have, you know, uh, gladiator they artisan like the, and, yeah. and, and so you're totally, you're absolutely right. And I think, again, that's a longevity thing because it, it allows the game to be more people to more things, to more people. Um, and part of that is the pieces themselves. There's no forced interactions. There's no, like everything is an open in like an open ended piece. That means that you can kind of like treat it in different ways. Um, and 
you can put different restrictions on how it's played and when it's played or like how powerful it is like i can it can be a small format like pauper pauper is a great example of like an artificial restriction that creates different interactions there's nothing fundamental about what you change to pauper other than your card availability your card availability is different right um yet the texture of a pauper game is unlike any format it's like one of the grindiest formats that you could possibly play it's like or it used to be i i think they've kind of like had some overpowered combos recently but like in general it's it's so i've played a couple pauper games i've seen a lot of them and it's they're so different and all it was was like we we use commons um rather than that. And, that and that's like super interesting i think i think it's like really really a lot of emerging gameplay comes from magic um and that's only just scratching the surface. It's not even looking. I bet you, if you looked at how many different formats have ever been played, it's probably in the tens of thousands, if not more. Yeah, yeah. It really, it really uh, fractures and fragments in a in a good way. Um, ben, I do want to like uh, talk to you about a certain domain, which I think you're you're fairly um, you're fairly well known for, which is uh, which is limited, right? Um, like. You've been doing spots on on limited resources. Uh, you're known for being a very strong limited player uh, historically in competitive play. Like, let me start off with a question, right? Uh, it's actually around the content. So I know you've been doing these kind of uh, looking back set reviews of older sets for LR with uh, Marshall yeah. and Luis. Uh, when what was the origin story of like you getting involved in doing these? Uh, what what you call reverse set reviews like how, how did that start to happen initially it, it, it was just a random conversation i had with luis luis is a good friend of mine we just like said it wouldn't be cool if we um did a, the set review of alpha and it was like we both are extremely nostalgic for that set we're both game designers and so we kind of like have a unique way of taking like like a, a kind of taking that and, and, and that, that perspective. I mean, it's not completely unique. Obviously, there are like, people like Patrick and Cedric that do the receivables, which is kind of similar, but it's not exi- I think our approach is different. I think they, they are much more methodical with, you know, like, let's break down certain cards. And we're talking about themes and kind of like stylistically what things are going for and historical kind of like um, touchstones. But it was just a, a random conversation Luis and I had one time, and, and we did it. We loved doing it. Um, and you know, we've, I think we've probably done about half a dozen now we do them quite slowly because one, we're all like pretty busy and what we do, what we do for uh, limited resources is like when there's a lull in the kind of like, um, the, the limited kind of like, you know, ecosystem, we find time to kind of do that. Now that I live in Seattle and like Marshall's only about two miles away, it's like a little bit easier. But um, we've, we talked about, like, trying to do it a bit more often. We've even talked about, like, possibly spinning it off and having its own kind of thing so that people can kind of, like, be, you know, more reliable in uh, accessing that. And I'd love to do it. Um, we're all busy, though. We all have, you know, Luis and I have young kids. So it's, it's always hard to t- find a lot of time to do that kind of stuff. So here's my, here's my fan moment. I really enjoy listening to the one you guys did on Mirage and Visions because like you talked about how it was a very seminal point in Magic's history and the limited, and, and basically what I found interesting about that episode was a lot of things. But one of the things was like, you guys try to deconstruct the historical basis for why 
they went deep into making this like truly one of the first limited friendly or draft friendly sets. Uh, and you went into like deconstructing the potential like business ramifications of doing so, like the, the market climate, like there's actually a lot of um, good discussion around that more so than the cards themselves, which I found really fascinating. I don't know what to call that exactly. It's almost like a business or a meta perspective on how like game design works. So I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, um, the question here is like, is that, is that something intentional you guys try to do with these, uh, uh, episodes in terms of in the show notes or an outline, or does it just naturally kind of come up as like wanting to put the thing in its proper historical context? Well, I, I, I think it's pretty natural for us just as game designers, um, both for Louise and myself, I think we, we, that's the way that we break down, like things is, is, is like everything has context. Okay. So yeah. you, 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 in some, you know, people call it grading on a curve, but, re but really, if you don't understand kind of like what was available or what was kind of popular or, you know, what were the things that were happening at the same time, um, you're going to lose a lot of re like nuance on, on the intention of what they're going for. Like a lot of the things that we say, we don't have kind of like actual evidence that they were doing it this for this reason. It, we just kind of look, look looking at a lot of context clues and saying, okay, it makes sense that this would be like you know the focus here because this is this is what happened before. We know what happened after, so we can kind of like backtrack. Maybe sometimes we're kind of like putting words in their mouths, or maybe like we the the scale of the intention we make get off. But overall, I think that uh, it's one kind of just important to understand that context. But two, I, I think it's just very interesting because you you often hear magic kind of reviews based on the cards themselves or things like that. Like, but you, you very rarely get that much kind of insight in the, the business and the environment and the community of magic itself. Um, and so we being kind of like older school players, are able to give uh, some some of the kind of people who have come lately kind of like perspective and understanding of like you know what we have now has so many iterations it is like you know 30th generation magic compared to what um was played back then and how magic was played and what people cared about i mean like it, it's it's i i'm nostalgic for that time but i also think that it's important that to realize that current magic is a hundred times more successful than old magic. Yeah. And so yeah. what were the, in, in, as a game designer and as a game maker, I want to be able to deconstruct kind of the steps so that maybe I can replicate kind of like the, the intention. Um, and so naturally when we talk about these things, they, they come out. And so, I don't know, we don't plan it. We do have a plan that we have an outline they said, we're going to hit these things. But mm -hmm. in general, I think a lot of the banter about that kind of stuff is purely organic. And we just kind of, you know, we would naturally, if we, if we would just happen to be in the same room, you know, having dinner or, you know, like having a drink, we would be talking about the same stuff. Yeah. I, I've noticed that just the three of you just have really good chemistry. Like, is, is it just like the friendship or is it just doing enough podcasts together or what, or a combination? No, well, I mean, there's definitely the friendship aspect. I mean, 
Luis and I like to rib each other, you know, as much as possible, and we can kind of take it as much, uh, take it and give it uh, without any worry that, you know, either of us will be um, offended. I, I and I, like while we're obviously both great friends with Marshall, I think one of the very very underrated pieces of like skills is that Marshall is so good at kind of like facilitating discussions and leading people in directions. He knows the answer of plenty of things that he asks, but he knows how to tee up like things that are interesting, contentious, like, like food for thought. Um, he does it on his podcast. He does it as like a coverage person. He does it on his watch channel. Like, like the, there's something about how he approaches kind of like discussions and dialogue that is what like he's just naturally very very good he doesn't have any formal training but he's like studied it he understands it and has just an internal knack and i think one of the reasons why he's you know really kind of come from nowhere like in 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 many ways he's like there's there's no specific reason why he is who he is as in his place in, in, in mag the magic community, mm -hmm. except that he's just great at being a commentator. Like I wouldn't say he's especially great limited player. He's fine. Like, I'm, he's, you know, it's certainly serviceable, but like, I don't, I think he would admit that he's just like, you know, a, a solid limited player. He's, uh, you know, hasn't played in a proto before yet something about how he distills information and how he expresses it to the audience is very comfortable very easy and also very thought-provoking he is by far the best commentator that magic has had and certainly one of the best podcasters that, that, that that's out there and it, and, it, and it shows by the popularity of that considering how like niche limited is when it <laughs> comes to kind of popularity yeah like limited resources is like a behemoth yeah. like it, it, it people like this is the podcast that the first podcast that they, they start with when, when, when people are listening about it. And, and, you know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to appear in that, you know, inspire some, you know, friendships and connections, but, you know, Marshall's a, a marvel in, in that kind of thing. And, and I think he's in some ways the silent kind of um, contributor. Um, I mean, obviously people respect him, but like, I, th I think the fact how good he is at his craft is very, very underrated. I fully agree. I fully agree. I, I think he's even in today's day and age, I think he's extremely underrated. Like he's just sort of like a very foundational thing that I would dare to say he might be one of like the seven wonders of MTG. If like there was a seven wonders MTG, like he's, his hands are in a lot of things and he has a way of like making other people better, which is really the secret, yes. the secret weapon. Right? Like, and he's also very good at playing the uh i don't know if this is the right term but like the the straight man or like the yeah. in in a in a commentary he's setting audience, or or yeah, in a comedy I setting or the audience, the audience yeah. surrogate generally like he's, he's yeah he's yeah he can be the every man every person uh uh magic content creator which is awesome and i i, I do feel what you said like i i like i i actually interviewed him for this podcast uh quite a long time ago and i could definitely feel like he he has this sort of like really good positive intentionality behind what he wants to do and like he knows he, he he's gonna go after it and it's just um 
it's just wonderful to see like uh, the LR success. So yeah, yeah. Oh that's... yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, I it it it's it's not automatic either. That's one thing. He, I he's he's the about. equivalent of a. I hope I'm not saying this in a bad way, but he's the equivalent of like the magic grinder who like through sheer like may not be the most talented person, but like they are able to like grind their way to like consistent place on the PT train, like back when that was a thing, just by being like, just by outworking the competition and like playing more, like practicing more. Whereas like somebody like Nassif would just like play two games or, uh, uh who was the other person I interviewed recently said like, oh, Alexander Hayne, like would just think about magic instead of playing magic. Like he's instead Marshall's the person who would just be like maxing every aspect of his, uh, his abilities in a, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will step in and say i do think there's a lot of natural talent in how he presents himself yeah i think i think that there's like a very ease of speaking that i don't think is learned necessarily yeah you kind of have to have that that's like a natural thing yeah Mm -hmm. that that that's the the natural aspect and that's that's the thing that is is superpower um i think when it comes to like understanding what he's the topic he's talking about or kind of like he does his work he does his research he's um, very diligent in making sure that, you know, before any pro tour, he like understands the formats and stuff like that. Like all the stuff is like, you're totally right. It's all hard work and it's all like, you know, intentional, but I, I do think to, to give him credit where it's due, I do think that he has a, 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 an ease of, of, of speaking that is very, very rare in kind of like magic or even just general broadcasting. Yeah. 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 I guess I would say there's some people that when I, when I listen to or consume their content, I feel like they're too big for the magic world. And I think Marsha is one of those people. Well, I guess he's outside the magic world with his extremely successful watch channel and stuff like that too. So it, it, it is it definitely incredible shows. how many people watch that show. It is like, it is for, for those who haven't seen this watch show that Marshall does, it, it gets like millions of viewers, right? Way, way more than limited resources does does for a a subsection of the community that i didn't even know existed Uh, so um (laughs) again i mean like you know all all power to him for being successful there but like it's it's incredible and 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 he's really reaping the rewards there um and it's actually fun i've watched a few quite a few of them because they're just kind of very 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 you know methodical and yes he, he lulls you into kind of like a very Easy rhythm. I don't know. Yeah. He's, he's, he's the the excellent broadcaster voice also doesn't hurt. That's that's yeah, something. That's, he's that's got not hurt. That's yeah. Not hurt. Yeah. He's also um, very tall. It doesn't help him in that. But... <laughs> <laughs> I think he's good at basketball too. So he's a man of many talents. Uh, okay. So just to just to wrap up the uh, uh, this LR bit, like, what do you think you're like taking away from doing these reverse set reviews? Like either internally or maybe from feedback through the community like what what are your takeaways from doing them now that you've done a couple of them i don't like so so here's he, he, the secret i just do them for fun i enjoy my time hanging out with marshall louise i like talking about magic i mean like again i i personally don't get any sort of compensation like you know they, they get all their, their stuff and i come on just to you know help out because they're good friends of mine and i enjoy talking to them in some ways, I don't. I could care less what people think about this thing. Mm. This is just something I like doing. Yeah. I do care that people like them. I mean, I you know, 
my own personal ego like likes to create a product that people want to see. I cannot give the commitment. One of the reasons I'm not a regular content creator is I don't want to be, I don't need to be, but I also don't want to be beholden to the community expecting me to kind of develop things like, because I have a you know, full-time job, I've got a family and all sorts of stuff like that. And I, and I, and I, and I, if I, if I did it, I wanted to be able to kind of like dedicate myself to it. So without having those commitments, which means I can come to it, like when we feel it's right, when we feel like we want to do it, when we, when it's like exciting for us to do, and we're motivated by just doing it for its own kind of like sake. Um, that being said, I do them because it also furthers the exercise furthers my ability to understand magic as a game and understand just games as a, as, as, as a business. And I think like thinking through these sets and like understanding the context and really, really kind of like drilling down on like, why did they do this versus this, you know, when I'm doing my own personal reviews beforehand, um, makes me a better game designer. So this is kind of like a little bit of personal training and a little bit of kind of like, just kind of like trying to understand the environment that I'm kind of like building for. Look, magic is a wonderful, wonderful game design teacher. I think also un not underrated, this is he's well rated, but like Mark Rosewater has probably created the greatest database of game design kind of like, you know, information. Now I don't agree with Mark for everything, but like, to kind of like deny his prolificness and quality of work that he's done there is, is he, you can't deny that he has a point of view and he, he goes on with that. It's, yeah. it's, un it's unrivaled how much content he's created and the quality of that content. And honestly, like I would say that early on when I was trying to learn things and when I was getting curious about game design, I started off with his stuff because it involved the game that I cared about, but then also I started kind of like understanding the perspective of game design. Again, I don't agree with everything because I think game design is like much more an art than a science in some ways, but understanding the perspective is really important. And he's very good at how he presents those. He's very thorough and he has a very, very kind of like consistent and effective point of view. And I think that that's like, again, very rare and he 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 should be credited like with all that glory because i think it's like a remarkable thing i could never do what he, he's done right like, the body work is so remarkable um and effective and and honestly probably has created dozens if not hundreds of game designers from that work specifically oh no doubt no doubt yeah so ben i think this might be a good uh, place to bookend it. And I'm going to just gonna say on the record here in the recording, I, I feel like we need a part two. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like we could do another two, three, four hours of your magic stories and other things. Um, I have to apologize. Maybe some of this discussion went a little sidetrack and that's, that's on me, like just, just going into tangents, but yeah, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time, Ben. What's the best way, place for people to find you on uh social or where you want to be found? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the easiest place is like find me on Twitter. I'm at TBS Dash. That moniker is a story in of itself, but we can talk about it later. <laughs> um, yeah. Written out TBSDASH. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll generally be like pretty accessible there. 
I often come up with like, you know, random polls and, and um, hypotheticals because that's the, the kind of process I have there. Uh, look, I, I, I totally enjoyed, you know, the time we've spent here. Happy to come back um, and kind of resume a part two at some point. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, I always enjoy sharing these stories and kind of, just, you know, speaking to the community. It's, it's super fun. And honestly, the tangents are exactly how I like it too. So, um, you know, expect more tangents if I come back. <laughs> I think this show should be called Tangents of Magic, but uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Ben, and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Okay. Thanks a lot, James.